Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals the priority. Members receive a lifetime of benefits to help you and your family achieve your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 life support, and access to over 300 branches on or near military bases. Can visit NavyFederal.org for more information, call one 888 842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. And with that, welcome on to the final Dunked On Basketball podcast that I'm hosting. Daniel Rue, your interim host, and really excited about this one. The Kyle Korver Recent Teams podcast with Joe Varden. Extremely excited to announce that he is now of the Athletic Cleveland. It's actually part of the reason why Cleveland had to get pushed back a little bit. And Brad Rowland of Uproxx, Locked On Hawks, and Peachtree Hoops. So, substantive conversations with both of them on these two teams that are going through kind of a, an evaluation period. So I really enjoyed it. Joe Varden is up first. Thank you so much for coming on and welcome to The Athletic. I'm happy I get to say that for you. Yeah, it's uh, it's really good to be here and, and good to get going. And I mean, The Athletic's on fire right now. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that they wanted, wanted me here and I wanted to be here and just can't wait to get going. This is going to be one of the most intellectually interesting seasons of any team in the league for me with Cleveland because of the way that... Kobe Altman, and if you want to go with ownership, however, however, and you could probably def- a certain cause better than anybody else here. But what they pretty much ended up doing here, because one of the questions that gets in the early part of this outline is, you know, like, how are their new additions going to fit in? And really what this Cavs team is, is it's kind of a test case of the importance of LeBron James, because not only did they add more things on the margins, you know, guys like Channing Frye and Isaiah Taylor, but also they didn't truly replace LeBron James with anybody new. So we're going to get a question that I've wondered about for about a decade, which is the specific importance of this player on a given team right well I mean you know uh there's that that wins over replacements that and and LeBron's is is off the charts and um so his replacement is Rodney Hood for better or for worse and Rodney of course had the worst plus minus of anyone in the 2018 NBA playoffs so um not off to the best start there uh but just for, from taking a step back and looking at it from thirty thousand feet, um, the, the Cavs believe, and I and and I, they may be right that um, that that their parts were better than um, than they appeared last year. Like if LeBron was kind of the engine, uh, it's a souped up, you know, it's I mean, to, to use the car metaphors, it's it's uh, it's that kind of uh, engine that's you know t- tip top shape. And then the rest of the car parts looked like they were just kind of meh, you know. But that, that, that was almost by design. Um, and even at times throughout the playoffs year, last year, Kyle Corbett was kind of telling us that. Like, look, yes, LeBron's amazing. Yes, uh, we need to play better. But we're also set up this way that everything runs through him. Either he takes every shot or he sets up every shot. And um, it can be inhibiting to play that way. And for somebody like a Rodney Hood, who uh, career-wise, his numbers are, are pretty good, um, and and players like Jordan Clarkson and 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 um, and then maybe even like a George Hill, um, it can be harder to adjust to that on the fly. So 
now you have all these guys and you, and you add in Colin Sexton who um, either should be on the upswing of their careers or have had good careers um, and when for what for for whatever reason uh, struggled last year in the playoffs um, they're gonna get a chance like a, a chance in a in a real system um, which is something that the Cavs never ran really um, they're gonna they're gonna be asked to defend which is certainly something that they didn't do in the regular season at all. Um, so, so I, th- I think that the chance is there for them to, to, to be okay. Now we have to keep in mind the first two teams that lost LeBron, uh, did not make the playoffs the year after. Um, and in the Cavs case, they were horrendous for their entire four years without him. So, you know, so history tells us this is an uphill climb, but, um, the Cavs feel cautiously optimistic about, about their part right now. And, and it will be interesting to see just how good or bad, uh, this team gets. And something worth talking about, you, you alluded to it, and I think this is important, is that Cleveland not only has players with the capability, and capability is one, one part of this, to handle a larger role, but they have a lot of players that have already done that in their career. I mean, George Hill is an amazing example of this, so he played with and without Paul George when he was in Indiana. That was due to an injury, but they, we basically got to see a George Hill team, and they were a lot better than I anticipated offensively, and Hill deserves the lion's share of that credit because they, they lost a guy who was so important to their offense and still kept on ticking pretty well. Kevin Love is the most prominent example of this. I mean, those Minnesota teams are about five years ago, but it, it, he was a remarkable offensive player at that juncture. Clarkson has had a big role. Rodney Hood, I think it's underappreciated that there were moments in time in Utah where he really had a lot on his plate. I mean, he had a usage rate. His last, uh, I think his last full season in Utah, his usage was like 23, which is pretty high for a guy who everybody thinks of as a role player. And then a lot of the other pieces on the Cavs have played in a variety of systems. Corver is an obvious example here. J.R. Smith, Tristan Thompson, just because of the way he bridged the LeBron time because he played before and then afterwards. And so they have a lot of guys who can step up into larger roles. And so then that, instead of having the question of kind of who, you know, like, can somebody do it? It's more the question of will somebody. And they're in many ways similar questions, but I do feel like that was probably part of the rationale that Altman in the front office used was we don't need to bring somebody in. We can just ask these guys to do more. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, again, I I think that that is, that is certainly it. Uh, You know, when you talk to Kobe and, and, and his staff, they talk about how um, rather than rebuilding and and tearing down this off season, which was kind of as soon as LeBron hit send on, on the the letter announcing his, his uh, deal with the Lakers, um, the, just sort of the overriding thought was, well, okay, you know, now you got to trade Kevin, you got to tear down, be really bad, you know, get your draft picks, get good again quickly. Um, and, and what they kept saying was, look, we did our rebuild on the fly last year. Uh, we traded for four guys on February 8th. And so, yeah, it comes down to, again, um, asking these players who are either supposed to be getting better or who have done it at a pretty high level for most of their careers, asking them to to do a little more. Um, and at the same time, uh, I, I find it interesting how many roster um, questions they have in terms of who is going to play where and when. 
Um, because, you know, you, again, the, the overriding, uh, belief throughout the league is that this team's not going to be very good. Uh, you know, Vegas has them, I think, uh, over under of like 31. They're on national TV twice. Um, I don't, I don't count NBA TV. So, you know, I, I they're on, they're, they have two national TV games this year. Um, it, it's just, it's not supposed to be there. Um, so when, when you think of a team like that, you should, you would think, well, there's going to be plenty of room for basically whoever they have to play. And, and I actually don't, it doesn't look like that. I mean, they're going to play Rodney, but they may start Jetty at the three. And so if they do that, now you have a guy in J.R. Smith who um, has been a, a four year starter here and, and was, you know, he's only two years removed from a, from being a starting two guard on a championship team. You know, he's on the outside looking in. Um, and if they go that route, then that means either your number eight overall pick, uh, Colin Sexton, a guy who half the rookies in the league think he's going to be the rookie of the year. Like that's how highly he's thought of him and, and uh, thought of and, and he wouldn't start in that situation. I think George Hill would. Um, there's questions in the front court. And then when you look at just the guard rotation overall, I mean, you're talking about, uh, Colin and George. There's certainly room for both of them. Um, and then if, if Rodney's a guard now, after that, you're looking at Jordan Clarkson and J.R. Smith and, and Kyle Corver, who is, is still, uh, an established three point shooter and, and they'll be able to use him if they wanted to in ways that they really couldn't with LeBron. Um, and then they have, uh, Nwaba and, and Decker. And so that, that's like, that's a ton of guards and, you know, somebody you've heard of is not going to get to play, um, unless they trade somebody, but, but you get the point. So. Um, I, I'm not sure how all that's going to shake out. And I think that's part of it as well. And, uh, is, is just how, as far as how this is going to go is, is who Ty decides to ride with. And, and keep in mind, I think of, um, of all his weaknesses over the last two years as coach, to me, uh, if, if number one was getting them to defend in the regular season, which we can talk about more of that if you want, but, but the other one would be, um, juggling talent uh like the, the Cavs were better when they had injuries uh because there was just there were fewer options especially last year um when everybody was healthy during the regular season they really struggled uh and Ty struggled to, to get the rotations right so um a lot a lot of work to do coming up here in the next next few weeks and as you brought up I think this is a good point Cleveland has a lot of different options and a lot of different theories on this team. I mean, one of the most obvious is how much time will Kevin Love spend at center? What is Larry Nance's distribution like? And those are going to have cascading effects on the rest of the rotation because if Love's playing more of the five, then you need more smaller guys. If he's playing more power forward, then you're playing more centers. And both ways are are viable. They have lots of bodies at both spots, but figuring out the theory, figuring out the mixes of players is going to be extremely important with this team. And my instinct when, you know, even though there are so many holdovers, I think they'll probably have to do a lot of experimentation that could come in preseason, that could come throughout the regular season. I'm not exactly sure at this point where they're going to go with it, but I think it's entirely possible that Cleveland just has to, they'll, they'll keep on working on figuring it out. And that isn't a bad thing in any way. I think having options is, is a positive thing. But what I'm kind of wondering about with that is, and my, my hope for them would be that having competitors at basically every position, having different players who, who can get minutes, that that will motivate everybody to, to really push because if they don't, somebody can replace them. 
Yeah, and that'll be interesting to see, um, especially when you talk about Jr. and Tristan. Um, I guess those are the two guys who have have really been here uh, a while. Corver too um, is is for the first time in a long time. Um, literally nothing is guaranteed uh, for this regular season. Um, since LeBron's been here, even when the the, the Blatt sort of experiment got off to a bad start. There was still this overriding belief of, okay, you know, they're going to end up in the playoffs. Okay, if LeBron is upright, you know, the odds are pretty good. They're going to make it to the finals. Um, And so now you don't have that. So, like, the complacency, the, oh, the season's too long. Let's, you know, we can take weeks off. Um, we don't have to get right until March or even April. Like that, that's not there because, you know, any time, uh, spent by this team with that mentality and they will be out, uh, in, in a hurry. So, um, that will be different, maybe uh, a sense of urgency. And yeah, it could create, um, an atmosphere. Like, you know, for instance, in, in summer workouts, um, uh, players, uh, coaches were raving about J.R. Smith. Um, and certainly entering into this season, the front office kind of looked at him as someone being on the outside looking in. So we'll see what he has left in the tank. And is he, is there just like kind of a, is there a new lease on his career, uh, here just without LeBron? Maybe there's some scoring chances that he wouldn't have had. Um, but is he already signed his, 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 uh, his fate by, by having the two worst years of his career? So, it, uh, that, that, that's certainly something else is, is, um, are there enough players here to, to push, uh, all these guys, um, into, you know, sort of raising their, their play a little bit. Another factor in that, I agree with that. I think that's, uh, and J.R. Smith potentially putting it in is, is a really good calibrator for this, is also that a lot of players on this team, with the notable exception of Kevin Love, because of the big extension he signed, and we'll talk about that, is a lot of these guys are playing for the next contract. I mean, Cleveland, they do have players that have some guaranteed money for next year, but a lot of them, I, I'm thinking in this case of J.R., George Hill, Corver, Rodney Hood, Decker, Fry. Depending on what happens with Nance and an extension, maybe Nance as well. Like these guys have a lot to play for, and whether it's their last big contract, their first big contract, or something in the middle, that can be a big motivator as well. Especially because there are going to be shots, there are going to be assists, and there are going to be rebounds to be had with this team. Yeah, Danny, you really you, you bring up a good point um, <laughs> that a lot of what we see this year um, may not be here at all. Come, come next year. Uh, when you talk about uh, JR, just a small portion of his, of the last year of his deal is guaranteed. Same with Corver. Um, hard to imagine either of them being here next year. Um, Hood will be an unrestricted free agent. Um, you know, my last couple of days at, at Cleveland.com, he, he told me that he wanted, um, that he, he wants a long term deal, but he wants it in Cleveland. So we'll see if if he plays well enough to get it. Uh, but yeah, he's he's up. Look, um, Nance is going to be here. I, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, this could be Channing's last year, and then certainly George is another one whose contract is such that he'd be easy to move. So, um, so yeah, so you're going to spend all this year, you're going to spend all this training camp and all this time in the year saying like we want to keep this. Um, the culture and the atmosphere going that's been created here in Cleveland about, you know, winning and all that. 
and and then the players who are supposed to be here to carry that on they they might not be and so that gets into where kind of where another place I wanted to go with talking about this Cavs team is they made two big decisions like of choices of their own volition this offseason the first of those was drafting Colin Sexton eighth overall I mean that that pick from the Nets was the shining shining star really of the return they got from Kyrie Irving I mean everybody including myself I, I I thought the Cavs got a heist in that trade thought that Isaiah would help them more thought Jay Crowder would help them more but that's all past it's prologue they got the Nets pick they chose Colin Sexton it was an interesting choice for a bunch of different reasons in terms of identity in terms of moving forward and I think it's good for him that George Hill is there that they have another option at the position but what have you seen from him so far and what is your expectation in terms of how the Cavs are going to use him this year yeah, so um, I think this is an excellent point, and certainly the the you know the company line all summer was is that you know we intend to keep George. Um, he's a veteran who can still play, and you know you couldn't ask for better protection, um, more of a mentor for for Colin Sexton than a guy like George Hill. Um, the, the Cavs really struggled with point guard all, all year last year. And so go, coming into it with these two guys, that would seem like a good thing. So that's the good part, right? Um, the problem is uh, George had the that exact same role last year with the Kings, and it was a disaster um, to the point where they decided fairly quickly um, that they weren't going to play him very much anymore, and they were going to go with Fox and then just kind of whoever. And, and Hill was out of the lineup and then was kind of borderline there on the rotation. So um, it, it's hard to play that role in a, in a losing situation. And certainly the Kings have a losing culture. The Cavs, again, are alluded to that they're not supposed to have that. Um, but I think part of this going well for George will be if, um, you know, if he's, if he's able to produce as a player, and then also that the Cavs are winning enough um, to keep him interested. Yeah, I think that's a, a really fascinating kind of question this year about what what is different with George Hill this year than, than last year when he was in Sacramento mentoring De'Aaron Fox. And I agree with you. I think the culture is a pretty significant one. And, and so we'll have to see. And with Sexton, I like that they can kind of go in either direction. And with young point guards, you kind of want to have that optionality because generally speaking, young point guards aren't good. And that even the ones who will be good generally don't start that way. That's just, you know, Chris Paul is the aberration of all aberrations here. That's not what you would ever expect. And so if Cleveland ends up being more competitive, then... And, and they want to stay that way if that's a, an important motivator to them. Presumably, George Hill in that circumstance will be better than Colin Sexton, so they can lean that way. But if Sexton plays well or if they want to go with more of a youth movement, they have that they have that option. One thing that's a little concerning to me, I like Isaiah Taylor, but he's really the only other point guard player really archetype. They have other guys that can run offense. I talked about Hood and Love in this context. So theoretically, if if the George Hill part of this doesn't work, kind of like how Sacramento cut bait on him, they don't really have an answer there. But I think what the argument, the counter that would be made there is, well, if that happens, then you're not as focused on really what goes on at the point guard position long term. And Hill, his contract is very favorable because he only has $1 million guaranteed for next year. So if it doesn't work, it's not really any sweat off Cleveland's back. I think so. I, I'd be careful with Taylor. Um, you know, he's on a non-guaranteed contract. Um, I'm not sure that, that he'll make this team. He may, he may, uh, but I'm not sure about it. I could see a scenario where the Cavs just keep 14 um, heading in, heading into the start of the year, but he would kind of provide that, 
that security um, in the event that, that George Hill doesn't work out. But that's certainly, you know, that's not where their mindset is right now. They're, they're happy to have George. Um, you know, they they say that he's that he's committed and, and ready to go. So um, we'll see if that's true. Lots more with Joe Varda, including a breakdown of the Kevin Love extension and our predictions for the upcoming season. But first, a message from Nate and our friends at Quip Toothbrush. So I'm on my honeymoon right now and getting maximum benefit. Traveling is really where the highest value of a replacement toothbrush comes from with the Quip electric toothbrush. Because before Quip, you had a choice of a traditional electric toothbrush that was huge and took up all the space in your dop kit especially if you're trying to travel light, big problems there. Or you could have a regular toothbrush, but it wasn't electric, and you'd get sweater teeth because your teeth really weren't that clean and you'd just have a bunch of plaque on it. That's what my sister used to call it. When you wake up in the morning and you just got this plaque all over your teeth that you can feel. But Quip has a AAA battery that lasts for three months, and it's the size, basically, of a regular toothbrush. It's really just a remarkable invention. They're named one of Time's Best Inventions. They're on Oprah's O-List, and they're backed by a network of 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers. Their subscription also really helps your oral health because a lot of people just don't change their brush heads often enough. Now you're just getting delivered every three months for just $5, and you get that battery too, actually. And free shipping worldwide. I have no idea how they're even doing that, considering international shipping is pretty expensive, but on the prescription program subscription program i should say they can get that to you also starts at just 25 dollars. and at getquip.com slash capspace right now you can get your first refill pack free with that quip electric toothbrush that's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash capspace g-e-t-q-u-i-p.com slash capspace let them know that you came from us with that slash capspace url the other big decision Cleveland made over the offseason was extending Kevin Love. They gave Love. I like to think of extensions in terms of the new money on the deal. There is always complications in terms of reporting extensions. But I would say it added four years, $120 million. I think that's the right way of – the healthy way of thinking about it in an unusual structure yep. where it rises and then flattens and then drops. But I, there's a reason for that. And so the question I wanted to ask you, because you're more connected with it, I did plenty of theorizing about this extension in this space actually before – but you know this better than I do with what I, I, in, ignoring the merits for the time being, what was the the rationale f- from ownership, the front office, however you wanted to, however terms are appropriately defined here? What do you think was the best distillation of kind of how and why this deal happened? Well, I mean, they, they desperately needed this flexibility and they desperately needed this. They needed um, they needed more time and they needed uh they needed to put themselves on better footing in the event um, that, that they decide they would like to trade him. Uh, w- without this contract, um, the Cavs were in a situation where they had to trade him. They had to before the end of this year. And, of course, the 20, 29 other teams in the league, of course, not all 29 would be interested in Kevin, but whoever was um, would be uh, – would not have near the the incentive to um, come with a, a reasonable package for him um, because they know otherwise they would know otherwise the Cavs were going to lose him. Um, now Kevin is is locked in and he's here for for uh, a total of five more seasons. Um, and so this is to, to get him. You know, if if he's having a great year 
and the Cavs stink and uh, a team really wants, you know, really thinks that, that he would fit and, and, and push them over the top, um, that they would be in a, in a situation to have to, to give up more or to, to better facilitate a third team to make sure that the Cavs get what they would need for a player like Kevin. Um, you know, we all, we all play, we all like to play GM, uh, especially in this NBA league. I think in part because the salary cap is so, um, complicated and because there's so many, you know, craziness, there's so much craziness in the summer and woge bombs and we're all breaking stories about free agency and this and that. And so it's like in this league, then we all just say, Oh, well, you know, uh, star A left. So you have to get rid of star B so you can start over. Well, this is Cleveland, and Kevin's the only all-star they have left, and they weren't going to get an all-star for him in return, certainly without this contract, and maybe never. So, uh, so, so you need to you need to get, put yourself in the best situation um, to be able to move him if you end up wanting to, or to be able to keep him. Um, so Kevin and his his representatives, uh, including Jeff Schwartz, recognized that and got a very favorable deal. Um, certainly they got above market rate. Um, I don't believe that there was much of a market for Kevin, uh, coming into, uh, it, you know, this free agency and, and this period of, of trades and, and, and whatnot that, that we saw. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really good deal for a guy who, um, has had injuries. Um, you know, dealing with some other issues and, uh, and, and hasn't been a number one, um, in, in four full years. So, you know, that they, the Cavs had to pay a little bit more to get this kind of flexibility, but now they have it. Um, they have a player who wanted to be here, which is important, especially again in a town like this. Um, and he's a guy who, if he's healthy, is a kind of player that you can, you can build around in the short term while you begin to cultivate the the Colin Sextons and and, and players like that. Yeah, I think I think that's a good distillation of of what happened. That Cleveland, the security that was provided, and I'm guessing there was probably some interesting kind of maneuvering and posturing from Kevin Love because one of the things you brought up, and and I understand this, and I agree with it to a point, is that the idea that Kevin Love. You know, if he's on an expiring contract or functionally because he would have had a player option, which we expect he would have declined, that it, first of all, that absolutely unequivocally lowers his trade value because teams can play that out if they think they're going to be able to sign him. They don't want to necessarily give something up if they, you know, if they if they're not sure they're going to sign him, then you worry about it just being a rental, and we see how that price can go down. So you, you have that element. But what one of the things that I think is interesting about it was, and this goes into the idea of the the price that they paid is that theoretically, and again, we're operating in in pure theory here because there's no way to prove this, is like if they had offered this kind of a contract to Kevin Love when he was an unrestricted free agent, what, where would it have been? And I think part of the other the other element of this, and you got to it a little bit, is that it is entirely possible that Kevin Love exceeds this contract. It's entirely possible that he doesn't. But there would have been a lot of uncertainty if like Cleveland had gone into the 2019 offseason and let's say they threw out a four-year $120 million offer, which they would have been entitled to do. He could have left for any number of reasons. And if Cleveland decided that having him at that price, and this is clearly the decision, if they decided having him at that price is better than losing him for nothing, and that's the price that he'll accept, and they couldn't whittle it down anymore, well, that that's the rationale they used. I personally think it's too much money for him, but at least with that... like. It, it, I don't know. There's there's something for me that I, understanding the rationale is still very important. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, quietly, uh, Kobe's staff, um, dating into April even and March when it really started, when you really started to consider that this could be it for LeBron. Um, and you would say to them something along the lines of, well, okay, so how do you begin to, to do the rebuild when LeBron leaves? And they insisted then that money is not an issue here. Um, that, that Dan Gilbert has proven time again that, that he wants to spend to keep this team good. Um, and so, so that's, I, I think they proved that, that here with, with Kevin. Um, but again, it's, it is the, the franchise you just, I mean, you just have to look at it from whatever price they paid to Kevin. They're really paying, they're paying to buy themselves time and, and flexibility, which, um, is, is I think is, is what you need. It's certainly not what the Cavs had when LeBron left the first time. I mean, they were devastated. They had, no, they had nothing in the cupboard. Um, you know, they didn't even draft Kyrie until the following year. Uh, it, it, it was a total mess here. So this is all, this is set up differently. And, um, you know, and now you have a, a player who's done it in this league. He's been an all-star five times that's still here and he, and he's conceivably going to be here for a while. So, you know, I, I, I think it's wise to pay a little bit more for that. We could move on to a, a question that I think is really interesting with Cleveland, especially with the, the change in personnel that they did have of who you expect on this team to be better than they were last year and who might take a step back. Well, um, that's, yeah, I mean, when I think about taking a step back, um, I mean, you're talking about JR and Tristan who are coming off the worst years of their career. And you're looking at Rodney, who had about as bad of a playoffs as you can have. Um, and Jordan Clarkson wasn't much better in the playoffs. And Corver disappeared in the playoffs. Um, you know, George Hill was okay. Uh, Kevin was, Kevin was pretty good last year. Kevin, um, I'm going to be fascinated to see again how, um, how he does without LeBron and sort of how they feature him and what, what ways does, does this work? I mean, you mentioned already how much five does he play? I'm wondering, is he going to be setting up on the perimeter as much as he did when LeBron was here? If not, like, are they feeding it to him on the block? Um, and then what happens with the action around him? So um, I, I uh, you know, I, I mean, if they're going to have any chance at all, Kevin's got to go from 17 points to 20, certainly. Uh, maybe more than that. Uh, Rodney is a key. He's got to be a lot better. Um, you know, even Danny, when, when he was here, uh, from February until the playoffs started in April, he, he averaged like 10 points a game. Um, so he was okay, but he's still, you know, there, there were a lot of nights where he just wasn't with it. Um, so he's, he's got to be better. And then I think you have a chance to see the emergence of Jetty, Jetty Osmond. Um, he just, uh, he, last year, he was a high energy player, struggled to shoot. They played him. They, you know, <laughs> they actually claimed, they said publicly that they traded LeBron's best friend back to Miami, um, so they could play Jetty more. Um, and then Jetty was nowhere to be found come playoffs. Uh, but, but he's going to get a real chance here. And, um, if he's, if he's better, then, then, then they're better. Um, I, I, you wonder about Corver. Uh, he had another really good year last year during the regular season. Um, it, it's hard to imagine him being here all year. He's kind of the way that they get a number one pick. Um, that's why they didn't trade him to Philadelphia. Uh, Philly was holding out as far as picks go. Um, that's what they want. I think at some point Corver is going to net that for them. 
and then you'll see maybe a little resurgence for him um, to whomever when he's dealt wherever wherever it is. Yeah, uh, going through it as you did, it, it's really interesting how there aren't that many players who I expect to be worse. Partially because so many guys had rough years last year, whether we're talking regular season playoffs or in certain cases both. I mean, Jr. just had a disastrous year by his standards. I mean, if you want to use PER, his PER was under ten. If you want to use efficiency stats, they weren't great either. His usage really dropped. Tristan Thompson was actually, in many ways, for me, a bigger disappointment just because he's a lot younger. You know, guys in their mid twenties, you don't usually see them take a step back. I I think he's a better player than he showed last year. That is my expectation. And I really like that you brought up Jetty Osman because I like him a lot. I think he's a talented player. The energy he brought at moments last year, like I felt that they should have played him more throughout. I just, I'm a big believer in him and just the idea that he knew, okay, it's a limited role, play hard, hit shots when they're there, compete on defense, even if you can't stop everybody. And I like that. I, I think those are valuable players as long as they're, you know, a reasonably caliber athlete or they have a good skill set or both or however they're going to go. So I, I like that as well. I expect Love, you know, he'll, he'll definitely put up, he'll have the ball more, so that, that'll help certain things. His efficiency probably is going to drop just because when you take more shots, generally some of those shots are worse. That's just the way this works. So whether that's better or worse is really a matter of perspective. And the guy that I think is actually the most interesting with this is Larry Nance. Nance, there, there were moments in time where the, the fit with LeBron was just perfect, where he was getting the ball in exactly the right places, he was doing all that, and then defensively, I've always been kind of in the gray area with Nance. I'm not exactly sure what he is. So I, I've never been able to figure him out, so I'm not going to figure him out on this question. But I think he's a very important calibrator, a bellwether of sorts, for this team. You know, you and a bell, there are a lot of bellwethers in terms of guys because they're going to have the ball in their hands a lot more. But with Nance, I think he can really elevate them if he plays well. But then if he's not providing as much value, it gets challenging. Yeah, he. I mean, he's he's a hard one just to figure out. Um, because you said it exactly right that he he seemed of everyone that they brought in, he seemed to be the one who boast who who uh, most paired well with LeBron. Um, and so now LeBron's gone. So now it's well, how does Larry fit? How does he assert himself? Um, he, his numbers were down in the playoffs also, but he did a better job defensively. Um, he held his own. He was able to block a shot here and there. He proved himself valuable in the conference finals, helping out on Horford um, when when Ty and and, and Brad kind of got into that chess match with with Horford and Tristan and going small and not and, and Baines and all that. And and Larry kind of helped um, the Cavs keep their heads above water there. So uh, and and it's you know I I, I guess we should be talking about how Larry. Um, should have a huge year because the Cavs really want to sign him to an extension. So um, it, they feel he's worth it. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, I, I guess that's, that's good news. It's just, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about this team um, in such a positive way, which they'll like, uh, but there is that history side to it, right? Um, this just doesn't, even for the Dwayne Wade led heat, they didn't make it. And, you know, Kevin has missed large swaths of time the last two years. If that happens, this team is devastated. Um, they lost 28 points, nine rebounds and nine assists a game. Um, they're obviously not going to make that up, uh, but they got to get close and, and you figure they're going to defend better, but you know, how, who's going to get them there? Um, I, I mean, Rodney, 
looks good on paper unless you're looking at his time in Cleveland. So, um, th- I, so, so that's why this team is hard to handicap. Um, you know, I mentioned Vegas is 31 and a half wins, and I know we'll talk about this specifically here in a bit, but, um, I, I think the Cavs are better than that, but, but you've got to be cautious if you're going to be optimistic. It's a healthy approach to take, especially because there are just so many to be answered questions. They are unanswered at the moment, but they will be answered at some point in the near term. And one of those big questions for me is really, I mean, with the rotation and just kind of the lineups is how all this is going to fit what position a lot of these guys are. I've talked about it a little bit with Love. I think the same thing is true with Nance. Like, but it's not only about what position they play, but who do they play with? So with Love, is it Love and Thompson more often? Is it Love and Nance? Is it Love with somebody smaller? Nance, same thing. Is he the second unit center? Is he the second unit four? And so really, I, I think the best place to start with this is what do you expect to be the starting five? And what do you expect at the moment to be the closing five for games? Yeah, it's funny that you said closing because um, the, the thing that I've been thinking about that, that shows just how much of an un- unknown this whole team is, is you know, you know Kevin Love is, is, there, is option one on offense. We all agree with that. But who's your closer? Who shoots when the game's on the line? Who shoots at the end? Who's got the ball in his hands? I don't know that that's Kevin. Um, he doesn't play the position for that. Uh, and so then who is it? Is it a rookie? Is it Rodney Hood? I mean, what we saw from him last year, is it, is it Clarkson? Um, who can be, it's so easy to take him away from what he does best. Um, so that, so, so that's, so it's with that in mind that I answer your question. Um, I think going into whether it's the first training camp game, uh, out there in Boston or when the season opens, I think you're looking at a starting lineup of George, Rodney, Jetty, um, Nance, and Kevin. I think that's going to be your starting five. And then after that, you're looking at Sexton, Clarkson, um, and um, Tristan for sure. So there's eight. And then those those other two spots, because, uh, of course, you're going to play ten guys at least in the regular season. Um, you look at JR and Corver as a possibility. Um, you know, don't forget David Nwaba's here. He plays with a certain, you know, with a certain, um, aggressiveness and, and does some good things. Uh, Channing Fry is here still. And they've got another center, uh, um, Ante Zizic, who <laughs> really actually fared well in the, in the few opportunities he got last year and then just was a monster in the summer. So, um, so somewhere in there is your 10. And then when it's all on the line, I, I can't answer that. I don't know. Um, you know, how good is Colin Sexton? Is George Hill good this year or isn't he? Um, do you need a three point shooter out there at the end? So is Corver still playing? You know, he's been a closer here since the second he walked through the door. Um, always on the, you know, always out there at the end. Um, Kevin, you know, th- there were times where he wouldn't be out there at all. Uh, in the days of, of LeBron and Kyrie uh, when, in the game's closing moments. And so now he's probably out there. So I, I don't see how you can answer that one yet, and it's probably one of the biggest questions of training camp is who are your five when you need a bucket late? And what do you need to stop like? I mean, you, the, uh, you're going to, at certain moments you're going to be down for, at certain moments you're going to be up for. And so that'll be, that'll be important as well. And 
I mean, hearing you say that, I'm sitting there going, wow, like you think about the Cavs with the lack of turnover other than LeBron James, that still Tristan, JR, and Corver were out of your projected starting five. Like that is a reminder of two things. One, how many guys Cleveland has, but also how this could be a bigger transition season overall. I'm not necessarily criticizing that. It's just a reminder for me of like, oh damn, like there's a lot that's going on here. There is. And, and, you know, I think there are a couple caveats here. Um, like for instance, I mentioned that JR looked great in, in, in September, uh, in their, you know, kind of their voluntary workouts down there in Miami. Um, and so let's say they all get together and training camp goes on and Jetty's just not, Jetty isn't what he showed in the summer and does, just isn't ready yet. Um, and, and JR is on fire. Well, I mean, he is a vet. You could play him. So then now things look different. Um, and then you could say the same, like, let's say he gets bummed out like he did last year when they brought Dwayne to camp and he falls off the face of the earth. I mean, well, then now you've got Nawaba, um, who the Cavs were really excited about. And, we have, and then, you know, there's Sam Decker, too, who hasn't been able to put it together. Um, you know, he said he came to Cleveland for more playing time. Um, I, you know, I don't see any playing time for him right now. So, um, so yeah, so there's a couple caveats there, but, uh, I think that's kind of how they are looking at it going in. Yeah. And I think what, maybe what's different with Decker for this is that he has the prospect of playing time more if he earns it more than he would in, in the Clippers, because the Clippers just have so many guys that are more established. Like Tobias Harris is a good example here. Like there's no way he's playing over Tobias Harris. And there are a lot of players on Cleveland where, you know, maybe he gets in over them. Maybe he doesn't. It also depends on defining terms. I think of Decker more as a small forward, but if he's a power forward, then he's running into even more established guys like Kevin Love, Larry Nance, depending on how they play them. But yeah, it's, it's a lot to, for Ty Lue to answer and a lot of evaluation, which is exciting because that has been a part of it. Like last year, the biggest challenge was motivation and then arguably incorporation after they added all these new guys. And there will be an element of that, but really this is figuring out a system, keeping as many guys happy as humanly possible. And so it's a very different coaching job in the same city with mostly the same players. It's absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah. And I mean, there was certainly um, some speculation internally and externally about last year being Ty's last um, as head coach of the Cavs. And, of course, he's coming back and he seems excited about it. And and you would say, well, gee, uh, what is there to be excited about after having a team that went to the finals all those years and having the best player, you know, probably in the league on your team and now he's gone. And so like, what's there to come back for? But, but this is, is really Ty's first chance to coach since he took over for David. Um, you know, the team was in first place. They had gone to the finals already when Griffin, David Griffin fired Blatt um, in January of 2016. And that kind of gave Ty the ability um, to do some things. He, he confronted Kevin, he confronted, Kyrie, he said he told LeBron that LeBron was out of shape. Um, LeBron started acting up a little bit in March, and Ty got on him for it, um, disciplined him even, and and so he he kind of had that respect when the when chips were down and they were down three one in the finals, and and Ty was the right guy for the job. And then it got harder for him. Um, the players got older. Uh, LeBron kind of got even more set in his ways, and it was just harder for Ty to get them to do the things that he wanted them to do in the regular season. Um, and so now he's got a team that he can mold. 
And um, I think that more than anything is what is bringing him back. I mean, it's funny to say that, like to suggest that if LeBron had stayed, that, that Ty wouldn't have returned. I, I don't know that that's true, um, but I know that he was worn out uh, of, of the environment that he had been in for the last two and a half years. And so now this one is totally different, even though most of the faces are the same. That That is crazy to consider, but it's true. So I think uh, there are a couple other things before we get to predictions that we can do quickly. What do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of this team compared to a theoretical average NBA team? Like, what do they do better and worse than another team? The Cavs are going to – the Cavs still have the personnel to shoot threes. Um, I know this is a three-point league, uh, but the Cavs have been way up there uh, in that department for the last several years. And right now, they still have those guys. Um, and theoretically, they have a slasher uh, with the ball in his hands in Colin Sexton who can maybe set them up a little, little bit. Um, you know, they do have a wing in Rodney who can, can who can kind of help facilitate – who, in theory, can help facilitate that. So they should, they should be able to shoot threes. Um, they should be a good rebounding team still. They, they really should. Um, they, they have Kevin Love. They have Larry Nance. They have Tristan Thompson. Those are good things. Um, Rodney, in his discussion with me, brought up rebounding on his own. Um, he thinks that's why he played a little better in the finals than he did throughout the playoffs because he started doing that. Um, you know, LeBron averaged nine rebounds a game almost, so... It's tough, but but so so I think those are the two things, Danny. I think they can shoot threes still, and they can uh, they can rebound still. Um, this team was 29th in defense last year. Uh, I expect that to improve dramatically, but um, they've got to be able to do it and then uh, show they can do it. And then we just, I mean, what is going to happen in the closing minutes of these games? I, I don't know how anybody can know that. I like that you brought up the earlier and now the idea of, of a closer. And, and I think what this team, I, you could say that their weakness for the time being is a true identity that, they, that we don't know what it's going to be. I think that will come. But the idea that there, there's just so many questions, like who is their go-to, especially if Tristan doesn't start, like their go-to rim protector, there are guys they can run the offense to, but who's that key guy to get a bucket? Who's their best perimeter stopper who's actually going to play in crunch time? Like all those sorts of things, they can get there. Teams figure this out on, on the fly all the time and it's very possible that I just don't know it that the, that you know once LeBron left they said this is what we're going to do and in mid-October I will know but for right now and they also I, I think they have a lot of guys that can can fit in well around you know like around not necessarily a ball dominant player but a, a, into us into different kinds of systems like George Hill's done that throughout his career Kevin Love's done that throughout his career Tristan I think can can thrive maybe a little bit more now that the, they could ask him to do more I could I wouldn't be surprised if he has a bounce back here so that's strength i like that you brought up three-point shooting that's there as well and something that i'm going to be really interested in with this year's cleveland team and i'm I'm not classifying this necessarily as a strength yet but i want to see how often they get to the free throw line because if they can still Hmm. do that without lebron that would be a really nice help for their offense because just like for a lot of other teams it it can be a big boon and I, i don't know exactly how cleveland's going to be in transition a lot of that's going to depend on who plays and whether Colin Sexton in particular, like how the point guards fit in there. But, you know, maybe they can put a little bit more there, you know, or at least something different together. So we have that. And then the last question before predictions is just, what are the key questions this team needs to answer? And I'm going to start with one because we were just here, which is, how does this team defend? 
because they have personnel to be a whole lot better than they were last year. And motivation's different. I mean, LeBron teams have a, a, a certain personality, let's say, over the last couple of years, and that yeah. will certainly be different. They also are going to have to defend if they're going to be competitive. So that so it's personnel, it's execution, strategy, all those kind of things. I think, to me, as much as the offensive end is fun and fascinating with this team, if they don't defend, this is a, a, a very short season for them. Well, yeah, I mean, that's certainly where it starts. And um, <laughs> I, I really think that, that more than anything, um, that they just didn't and couldn't defend for most of the last two regular seasons because their best player, who is the best player in the league, um, he took numerous possessions off to the point where um, a couple things happen. One, the uh, defense, the you know, team defense would break down because he he wasn't doing what he's supposed to do within that system. Um, so that'd be one cause for breakdown. And then the second thing is, how do you ask for effort um, from four other guys uh, when the guy they all look to is standing there with his hands on his hips? Um, and and I. I I feel silly saying that in a way because LeBron made a great case to be MVP last year, uh, and he had his finest statistical season last year, at least in terms of like the sort of the top line numbers that we looked at. He played in every freaking game. Um, he dragged this team to the finals. So like, I want to pump the brakes a little bit on this, <laughs> but when you talk about okay, well, why didn't they defend? I mean, LeBron had every bit as much to do with that as anyone. Um, the second thing that they were, the second reason would be they were just um, really bad uh, at the point guard spot with kind of who they had there. And, and uh, LeBron likes to say head of the snake. Um, so, you know, when Isaiah was out there, he was really poor. Um, and and uh, that was only a month, uh, but it was like historically bad, the plus minuses and things things of that nature. And then, um, you know, George Hill is supposed to kind of fix that. I mean, Kyrie wasn't a very good defender, and, and you know, just kind of go on and on with all this. But um, so, so yeah, so defending is the one question. I think the second question, we've already gone over it, is who takes the last shot when it matters. Um, there's obviously questions in the lineup. Uh, there's questions in the rotation. Um, it, how good of a coach is Ty? I think that's a, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, David Griffin uh, – has has said that he thinks Ty is a brilliant coach, and that's really going to show this year. Um, you know, we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll see. And then I think the other question is, um, how bad is bad enough to give up? Um, and and what does giving up look like? Um, you know, they the way they kind of sold it is we signed Kevin because um, we are not we are not interested in tearing down. We're we're trying to make the playoffs and be good. Well, okay. Uh, at what point do you change course? I I don't know what that is, and I don't know that they will. But I think that's a legitimate question. I had thought of that in terms of defining success, but it's an, another way of putting it, which is probably more pragmatic in terms of how the front office and ownership sees it. And with this team, I mean, it could go in a lot of different directions. And so one of the questions is just how do they address the input they get? So if they're at 500 in late January, are they ha are they thrilled with that? Are they happy with that? If they're five games under, if they're 10 games under, wherever, wherever they are in that way, how do they take that input? And Cleveland they're not as stripped bare, thankfully, as they were the last time LeBron left in terms of draft picks and everything else, though they do have plenty of obligations outstanding. It's just they're slightly toned down. 
And you brought up Tai Lu, and the example that uh, this is going to sound a little bit strange, but there's a, a reason I'm going here, which was last year I said when Minnesota tr- traded for Jimmy Butler, that former short-lived Cavalier Andrew Wiggins, that it w- we were going to learn how good he actually was. And in that case, it was because he was put in a much better situation. And so if he could play with somebody who was much better than he was, who could take a larger role in the offense, you know, if they could do that. And I think largely Wiggins didn't do that last year. With Tai Lu, it's like, okay, he coaching LeBron team is a unique challenge. I think everybody acknowledges that there are positives, there are negatives, depending on, I mean, especially later in his career, LeBron, all those sorts of things. Now this is Ty Lue's team. He gets to make his imprint. And so I felt that we really didn't have enough information to judge him as a coach pretty much at all through the time that he was coaching after he replaced David Blatt. Now we get that opportunity. And so as you said, is he a good coach? What does he value? What does he prioritize in terms of who makes the four or who doesn't make the four in terms of who closes games? We are going to learn so much about what Ty Lue is as a coach. And I am unsure of what the answer will be, but I'm happy that we're going to get that information. Right. I I mean, I think uh, that's almost as fascinating as any of the other um, issues that we've looked at is just with him. Because here you have this championship coach, um, the people who hired hired him swear by him, um, and and but now like the sort of the the roadblock to kind of molding the team he the way he wanted to is gone. But that so is the crutch, right? Like how how many deficiencies do, do, does LeBron make up for in any in any given night? And and uh, and that's gone now. So yeah. So it's it's sink or swim time for Ty, and and I know he's he's looking forward to to, to kind of showing that um, that he can really do this. The last part of these is always predictions. The way I like to put it to have the guest answer first, I think that's more fair, is to do first first the expected record, you know, like what you, what you think is the most likely outcome here. And then if you want to give a, uh, an exact one, you can, but if not, kind of what a best case scenario looks like and what a worst case scenario among reasonable options. This is not, oh, they don't make a three for the entire season or anything like that. It's just what is a, what is a, like a better than expected, a really good season and a really bad season look like. Okay. Um, I, predicted record. I'm going to say, I'm going to say 38 wins. Um, I, I am someone who, um, I bet on history until it changes. Uh, you know, I like the Yankees to win every year back in the, in the, uh, last decade until they didn't, right? Like, so you got to knock them off. So, um, history tells us that, uh, when you lose a superstar like this, it doesn't work out. Uh, so 38 wins. Um, that's, that's my record. Um, the best realistic case, and, and I think, and, and some people are going to roll their eyes when they hear this, but hear me out. Um, the Indiana Pacers were predicted last year by Vegas after having lost Paul George to win 31 games. I think they won 48. Um, Victor Oladipo went from a player who was drafted high and pretty good, but lots of holes to a definite all-star playmaker, ass kicker, whatever. Um, if Rodney Hood is good, you know, like if Rodney Hood like kind of reaches that potential, like he's not going to be Victor good, but if Rodney Hood is good, like a, then they have a chance. They they could be sixth, you know, they could be, um, I mean, maybe fifth is too high. I don't know, but they could be up there. Like they they could be ahead of the eighth spot and certainly out of the lottery. Like that that is realistic. Um, the worst realistic case is Kevin gets hurt early, which is certainly not out of the question. Um, George goes into the tank and now all of a sudden you're looking at, at a rookie, um, and, 
and, and things just kind of just spiral from there and, and you start talking about like 20 to 25 wins. Um, I just think there's too much talent to be anything below, uh, I guess really 25 wins, but, but you know, a 25 win year would, would be really hard for, for the people in Cleveland. For me, the Cavs have one of the larger variants, like the larger realistic areas, partially because there's just so much that we don't know about this team. So I'm going to start with the high and the low, and then I'll go into the middle and explain why. So for me, the best case scenario for this team is something along the lines of what happened to Washington last year, not in terms of the personnel they have, but so Washington ended last year, they were about league average in offense and defense. I could see Cleveland being above average in one and slightly below in the other, but I think the idea of something around 15 and 15th is is reasonable. That is generally somewhere between a 41 and a 43 win team, just depending on close games and all that kind of stuff. I could see Cleveland being one of those teams. And if Cleveland wins that many games, I fully expect them to be in the playoffs. Their worst case scenario, I think it's very similar to what you said. You said 25. I think it's right around there. Really what that is, is that the defense wasn't much better. And then the offense just falls off a cliff without LeBron that none of these guys. Also, if you get into those circumstances, then it gets into the trading things that aren't nailed down, going for the youth movement. And while they have young players that could be better in time, they're probably not going to be good this year. So then that gets you into the, I think 25 is a good number. I mean, considering the Haw- the Hawks last year won, they won 24 and they performed pretty much to their point differential. Like, I think the Cavs are way, way, way better than the Hawks were last year. So 25, I think is, is fine. I'm going to be more negative in that range. And I, I, I think if I have to pick a single number, I'm going to pick 32. And the mm-hmm. reason for that for me is I'm not sure on their defense. Like I, I said, that's the defining question. They certainly have personnel there, but and and maybe they try, maybe that's really the, the issue and they can get into it. But I saw a lot of like miscommunication and not getting back in transition and all that. And so some of that could be, you know, there's always the kind of the physical, the mental and the emotional. The defense takes all, all kinds. And I completely understand like your your estimate is, is totally fair to me. I'm just taking the same set of input and my, my guess, this is kind of, I guess you could make the history argument here. And a lot of why the other part of why that swings for me a little bit more to the negative side is because of the the sheer just amount of work that this team has done over the last few years. Going to the finals four years in a row is tough, and they have had a lot of turnover. I mean, they turned over basically half the team last year, which is remarkable. But what I feel is always a concern with these kinds of teams is that they're playing for pride early on. And if it goes well, then there's an easy path. As like That's what the logic of this getting to be like a 44-win team or something in that range is like. It goes well, and they're like, hey, look, we can do this. If Sometimes if it goes badly early, that a lot of these guys are just sitting there going, well, I'm, you're playing for your next contract, but maybe you're not fully engaging, something like that. And I, you, you talked about history. I kind of go in that direction that playing for a playoff berth and playing for, even though the regular season was super weird the last couple of years, playing for the possibility of a championship are two very different things. So I could see them going in that direction. And the one other important thing that we have to talk about, and this is only as important as the front office and ownership feels that it is, is the idea that Cleveland has this protected pick. And so it's protected. Cleveland retains it if it's one through 10. Otherwise, it goes to Atlanta. And so with the new lottery reform, I think this is what we're really talking about is, are they in the bottom eight or so? Because the odds are just, you can fall back. They've equalized it all. And so I don't know. You would know far better than I if they're close, like if they're in that conversation. So we're in the not in the worst case realm here, but we're below, well below 50%. 
I think there's a chance that they just lean into that a little bit and, you know, maybe it's losing a couple extra games. Like maybe, maybe on my theory of this, they're a 35, 36 win team. But when a team has, is in that range, usually they fall off because that's just the way this works unless that's enough to make it into the playoffs. So that's a long winded way of saying this is a, a tough team to project. And I'm really intrigued by how it's going to go. And I'm totally open to the prospect that I'm just too, too low on them because I, I understand exactly what you said, but it's kind of two sides of the coin. And so we, we'll just have to see which way it goes. Well, I, and, and I think um, if you consider, uh, if, if you consider like where you see them and then also the idea, which you're exactly correct, which is um, when you, when you stink and you have a chance to, to go for the lottery, the teams tend to do it. Um, and so then like when, when we were talking earlier about questions, I think it comes back to that. What is too bad? Like what is bad enough to do that? Um, because of the lottery reforms, you're correct. Um, I think you have to be significantly bad. Like you've got to be one through eight. Um, and then if you're not, then you have to weigh, you have to more weigh like, well, is the trade that we're going to make, uh, going to cause us more damage um, than keeping this player but not making a draft pick next year. Um, like that's something that you that that they have to consider. Now, of course, they could just not play their veterans uh, in an effort to lose games, like Phoenix has done. They could do that, but 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 you you just there's no way you and I could know what their threshold is. But but what constitutes bad and when is it? Like what you know. If they get off to a slow start, how much time do they have to recover? Um, if things start out slow and then they're bad in, in December and January, like they were last year, um, do you panic in February? Like what? What is it? And and I and I just um, that that's the thing I think to watch. Is there anything else that you feel we definitely need to discuss on talking about this cap season? I mean, we went and we covered a lot of ground here. Well, um, you know, I mean, they've. <laughs> Uh, it's a team that's been left for dead. Um, you know, Vegas, um, national TV, um, you know, friends of mine who I've worked with for years, they're gone. They're in LA, two of them. Um, I'm here at the athletic because the last Cavs writer to do the athletic is now doing, uh, or the last, the athletics last Cavs writer is now kind of doing, Jack of all trade stuff in Cleveland. Um, so everybody left except for them. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of them, uh, uh, against the world, if you will. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, you know, I, I like to use the, the Indiana, uh, analogy there. I mean, maybe that's a little strong. Um, but the, the, the possibility is there, uh, that, that the culture that, that LeBron created remains and they surprise people. So nothing new, uh, not, nothing new to add, uh, but it's just, um, I agree with you. This team is very hard to handicap because, um, that there is potential for disaster and for a real surprise. And that's, you know, for obviously for the management and the players and everything, there's, there's a peril to that. But for people like us who watch, I enjoy that uncertainty because it gives us something to figure out. And this Cavs team, I think it's going to take me at least a month to really get what they are and where they're going. And they're probably going to evolve a lot over the course of the year, too. So I'm I'm really excited to see where this goes. Well, you know, they pay me whether they the athletic pays me whether they win or lose. So that's true. You know, I'm, ex- I'm excited for another run through the league, though. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. That was fun. 
Thanks again to Joe Varden for taking time to come on. You can now read him at The Athletic Cleveland for many reasons. I'm very excited to say that. You can also follow him on Twitter at Joe Varden. That's J-O-E-V-A-R-D-O-N. Before we move on to the Atlanta Hawks, a message from Mott and Bo. I'm starting to feel like my dad at this point. I'm going to this mode. Oh, you, when I was a kid, you could get a great pair of jeans for 30 bucks, and now you got to pay 200 bucks, and you're not even comfortable. And yeah, I guess truth was those $30 jeans back then probably weren't that good, and also the styles were pretty loose, so it didn't really matter if they fit or not. Now, though, styles are slimmer, and you need a pair of jeans that's going to fit you well. But, of course, that's going to be really uncomfortable with a lot of these jeans brands, and you're going to pay a ton of money. But not with Mott & Bow. Their dynamic stretch technology means you can be comfortable and have something that fits you well. They source their denim from the most well-respected mills in the world. And they also take away any of the pain of shopping online because you could even request two pairs of different sizes to try on. Make sure you're getting the right size and then you just send the other one back in that same prepaid box. During Mott & Bo's September savings event, you will save 20% on everything that they sell there. MottAndBow.com slash Capspace is that URL. M-O-T-T and B-O-W dot com slash Capspace. 20% off everything only for the month of September. Once again, that's mottandbow.com slash capspace. Let me know if that's slash capspace URL that you came from us. Second half of this podcast is with Brad Rowland, writer for Uproxx, host of Locked on Hawks, and just a great guy to talk to about this team. Of course, lots of Trey Young discussion, but Atlanta has a fascinating collection of other young players. So we talk about everybody, go into some detail about what the rotation could look like, predictions, of course, as you would expect from these episodes, and hope you really dig it. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Always happy to talk about the Hawks and, and, and the NBA. And we're, we're almost there. It's a, it's, it's a good time to be covering the sport because it's always more fun when it's ramping up to starting again. Yeah, I find this time right before it gets going sometimes a little bit tough because then it's it, it, you're, you're ready for it to get there. Like the offseason is the offseason, but we're in this time. But the Hawks are real, actually a really good example of a team that I'm very excited for the preseason on because while Summer League provided some information on guys like Trey Young and a little bit on Amari Spellman and John Collins, I feel like the the preseason is going to be a much clearer picture, though obviously you don't want to read anything into that, much less the entire rookie season. Absolutely. I would say uh, the preseason is certainly more important for a team like Atlanta than some because we don't have a ton of information. As you mentioned, like Kevin Herter, for instance, was a top 20 pick that didn't play in Summer League, and there's some camp battles, and now they have these kind of weird veterans on the fringes that they've signed for training camp that aren't supposed to be on the roster but are names that you might know, like Thomas Robinson and Cole Aldrich and R.J. Hunter, who are like on, on non-guaranteed contracts. It's all this weirdness because you don't really know what's going to happen. And then you have, of course, Trey Young as an unproven player, and he's, of course, going to be the face of kind of everything that's going on. So there's a lot of intrigue, uh, for, for at least in terms of a rebuilding team in September, even if the camp battles don't matter quite as much as they do for teams that really, really matter in terms of this season, the Hawks have a lot that can be gleaned from this uh, early part of the season. I'll be interested in your perspective on this, but for me, what the, the most important takeaway from the Hawks offseason was that they went from being kind of a, a less interesting bad team to a much more interesting bad team. Does that seem fair to you? Absolutely. I would I would certainly characterize that as accurate. Uh, I always claim that the team two years ago that made the playoffs was my least favorite team that I've covered. Um, I had a lot more fun last year covering that very bad Hawks team than I did the previous year with you know, with Dwight Howard. It was just a not fun team to watch. Last year wasn't that much fun either, I will say, but at least there was some intrigue and you kind of knew what the plan was. 
This year, it's very similar in that we kind of all know the deal. The Hawks are not going to be very good this season, but they have a lot more intrigue. You add three first-round picks, including Trey Young. You have another year of guys like John Collins and Torian Prince. You know, they, everybody knows the direction they're going in, but they now have a um, even more clear plan in place. They want to play fast. They want to spread the floor. They want to shoot threes. They have a young, vibrant coach. And, you know, with all respect to Mike Budenholzer, who I actually liked quite a bit as a head coach, he was not the most fun guy to deal with. Like he was kind of boring and it was, you kind of knew that he kind of knew the deal. It was a system kind of thing. And yeah, that was actually very good and very effective under his tenure. But there's some more genuine intrigue this season, um, to go with the fact that they just, they just add a lot more interesting pieces. So uh, yeah, I would certainly say it's less boring this time around, even if everyone kind of knows that the Hawks are not going to be very good this year. And at the same point, I, what I think is useful for a team that is this young, and the Hawks are a very young team, is that nothing is definitive. Like, I, I, there are people who are, especially with Trey Young, I mean, Trey Young and, and Luka Doncic are going to be the two players that are like that this year, where every single move they make, people are going to go, oh, that proves they're a great player, that proves they're going to suck, all those sorts of things. And it is both very hard and extremely important to understand how long a process this is for those guys, both individually and in the team concept, because when you are running an offense, which Trey Young is definitely going to do and Doncic might do, there's a lot of learning that is involved in that, a lot of adjustment, and even just the jump from Oklahoma to NBA caliber athletes, both playing with you and playing against you, is a massive change. And so I I know there were people who are already prejudging Trey Young based on Summer League, and it's this interesting balance, because I got, you know, like, for some people, that idea of, like, having to be patient is very deflating, but for me, it's exciting, because each piece of information has value, it's just that it's not good to say it's the whole picture. Yeah, I think even within Summer League, you know, he obviously was not very good in Utah and then showed a lot more flashes in Las Vegas. And there's there's just a lot of data to be uh, added to the mix here. I do think it's important to note that I know you know this, but most rookies are bad. And I've been trying to tell people even locally that, you know, making these rash judgments on Trey Young, even after even one season, much less one preseason in one Summer League or a 10-game sample or a 20-game sample would be a mistake because – you know, again, most rookies are bad, especially one and done rookies. And then you have point guard being another level of that, where it's very rare that a first year point guard um, actually is efficient and is actually effective and a helpful player. Even guys who we still believe in, like last year's top 10 picks, for the most part, were not great in terms of helping their teams win as rookies. That's kind of what happens. So, yeah, it's important to not prejudge these things. I know there was obviously there was a lot of reaction both in Atlanta and Dallas and locally, um, uh, you know, and nationally and all that fun stuff about that trade. I think, you know, it's definitely too early to declare winners and losers. I personally didn't love it for the Hawks when it happened, and I've kind of come around to a certain extent, mostly because of the extra asset that they were able to extract, and I think it's going to be a lottery pick probably um, next year. So it's it helps in that way for the Hawks, but yeah, it's definitely important to be patient, especially with all rookies, and Trey Young is almost an even more um, dynamic case of that because of the way that he played in college, um, his teammates in college. He's going to be playing a very different brand of basketball this time around, and as a result of that, patience is very, very important. There are a lot of different ways that players have to adjust, but I think one that gets really underappreciated is also just getting used to being around different teammates, around a different scheme, and it's easier to talk about in terms of opposition. Oh, you're going against bigger, faster, stronger guys, but Trey Young is going to have all these adjustments because he, as a point guard, it's a point guard is a mix. It's not like quarterback necessarily in football where it's a talent distribution position because point guards can generate a lot of their own offense that's a big part of the appeal of Trey Young 
But there's also this element that we won't have a full sense of what he can build to an offense until the Hawks grow around him, whether that is internal improvement, bringing in new guys, or both. I think it has to be both. Uh, I mean, it's definitely a good point. You know, my my uh, calculus on Young is interesting in that I firmly believe his passing is his best skill. That's not a super controversial take at this point, given the way that he looked, especially in Las Vegas with his passing. But he's always been a very good passer. It was underrated in college, and I think it's probably getting closer to properly rated now but for him to showcase that especially he's gonna have to have talent around him there are some intriguing pieces on this roster but no you know no guys that are respectfully going to probably be like you know top tier star level second or third bananas on good teams so they're gonna have to add um guys whether it be we have the draft next year when they have their own first round pick or you know for agency or as you mentioned internal growth with torian prince and john collins those guys can certainly be um promising quality players in the future but i definitely agree that you know in addition to his own growth and development individually, Young is going to have to be put in a situation to succeed more often um, than not as he, as he moves forward, and that's going that's definitely going to revolve around the roster, even if I actually think the pieces right now are a little bit underrated. Um, they do have some some reasonable veteran talent, and they have a little bit more depth than you might think, but you know, obviously that's the situation where this team's not going to be great, so he's going to have to learn on the job in his own right and then kind of have guys grow alongside him. They have a plan in place for that, but uh, whether that actually works is uh, yet to be seen. Something else I want to keep an eye on with Trey Young is that He's so dynamic in transition as a passer and, of course, as a shooter. And the Hawks getting better on defense over time. I I don't think they're going to be great on defense this year. Lloyd Pierce has talked about it being a point of emphasis, but usually it takes time to build that out. And the Hawks are going to need better personnel, too, and that will take some time. But those getting more stops leads to more transition opportunities, and so that would give Young more opportunities to do it. And as much as teams want to say, oh, we're going to run or we're not going to run, that is an important consideration that the Hawks will hopefully improve on over the years to come. They absolutely want to play fast, and I think Lloyd Pierce has said that repeatedly, but as you mentioned, you have to get stops in order to do that for the most part. I do think um, this is not going to be a very good defense. They did lose some pieces that were pretty bad defensively. I think Dennis Schroeder's defense last year was quite bad. Um, and obviously, I think people should expect Trey Young to not be very good in, in his own right um, as a rookie because he was a pretty bad defender in college. And again, rookie point guards, he's pretty frail. Probably isn't going to go great there. But removing Schroeder and removing Marco Bellinelli and some other guys who were really kind of bad defenders last season should help a little bit. But uh, as you mentioned, there's no reason to think this is going to be a good defense now, which probably won't help him. Um, even if they want to play fast, it's tough to do that if you're not getting stops. A quick point on Schroeder. We can talk about that trade. I, I'd like to talk about it a little bit later, but he is a great example, so is Andrew Wiggins, of a player who looks like he should be a good defender, and so he gets substantially more of the benefit of the doubt, especially for people who watch a team less often, because obviously if you watch the Hawks, you know, let's say 35 to 40 plus times a year, it gets pretty obvious who's good at defense and who's not. But those players, it, it's amazing how that happens. Like Dennis Schroeder, part of I was I liked him a lot as a prospect, and he ended up kind of getting towards my ex, my expectations, not in the way I expected. I thought he would be a very good defender who could piece it together offensively, and he just never really brought the like, especially once he became the full time starter. The intensity wasn't necessarily there, and I thought another issue with it was also just execution. It didn't seem like he was really doing what Budenholzer wanted, which I also think made it even less surprising that he didn't end up when the when the Hawks were desperate to move him that he didn't end up in Milwaukee because that would have been way too funny yeah I would have been surprised uh, knowing how at least what I've heard and what I've kind of known but being around the team if Bud had been trying to seek out Truder by the end those guys did not necessarily see the eye, eye to eye in my understanding and part of that was probably the buy-in defensively I do think Truder is a classic guy who 
has the tools and looks like he should be a good defender. He's long. And even early in his career, when he was more of that pure backup specialist, he did play better defensively. There was more activity, more energy. And as he got more of a primary um, role offensively, he certainly declined in his effort level defensively, which is obviously it's only part of the equation, but it does matter when you're not necessarily dialed in defensively. I just think it's worth pointing out. And as you mentioned, there, it takes some time to notice when guys are bad for the most part defensively. But um, his uh, it was certainly a problem that can hurt you, especially at the point of attack. You have to be able to have a point guard that can provide some level of resistance and the Hawks were able to scheme around him a little bit but you know their numbers when he was on the court defensively were really really bad last year it wasn't all him but it was certainly a big chunk of him um so uh, yeah something to keep an eye on uh, when, he, when he moves to Oklahoma City I think he's actually going to buy in a little bit more but this is not a funner podcast obviously but he'll when, when he tries he's not as bad as he was last year but last year was certainly uh something that you didn't enjoy watching as a someone who appreciates defense and that trade I think worked out beautifully for the Hawks the cap space they gave up in 1890 and they weren't really going to do much with. And then not only did they add kind of the, the flexibility in future years of getting off of Schroeder, but I'm really intrigued to see if Justin Anderson can get any sort of minutes in the rotation. He, another guy who the idea of him has been better than the reality over the last couple of years, but, you know, a stronger player than some anticipate. His jump shot has some room to grow and, and he's had some moments where it looks pretty good out there. And so the Hawks, they have this unusual element in their rotation where they have multiple capable players at every position, but I'm not at most spots. I don't think there's anybody who's just like un, unquestionably like the guy now and in the future. I mean, Trey Young is probably going to get that deference because he was drafted so high and, and he has that kind of ceiling. But I could see Anderson, like a lot of these other players, working his way into rotation if he plays well. I absolutely agree. I think the Hawks actually, you know, went out and kind of targeted him. They didn't have to necessarily do that part of the trade. Um, they could have made it work otherwise. And, you know, they like Mike Muscala, especially during the Budenholzer era. I'm not sure he was long for Atlanta, even though he was sort of a lifer and somebody who I always kind of liked. But Anderson's a, a, a potentially versatile player. He's a situation. It's a guy. It's a guy where he's going to have to make shots. I think that's the biggest thing with Anderson that he's never really done at the NBA level is just consistently knock down threes. Um, I've always liked him quite a bit going back to college and. I'm not the only one. A lot of people uh, in draft circles really liked him coming out, and I think we're all kind of waiting for the light to come on. But this is a Hawks team that has a lot of wings, not necessarily the sexiest guys in the world. You know, you have Vince Carter and you know Daniel Hamilton and Alex Poitras on a two-way, and there's always sort of bodies that are around. I do think there's a path to Anderson playing a real role on this team, especially if he makes shots. And he has that relationship with Lloyd Pierce dating back to Philadelphia. Those guys seem to be on the same page. They're saying all the right things. How much that matters um, is definitely debatable, but Anderson's someone who they certainly looked at and wanted to add to the mix, and I think they believe in him. I, I still kind of do myself, but he just has to make threes in order to actually stick. Um, you know, This year he'll probably have a longer leash than he maybe should, just because of the other options are not uh, being fantastic. But I think there's a role for him if uh, everything breaks right. So I'm thinking with the remaining additions, the Hawks have so had so much turnover this offseason. We can kind of go position by position. And we talked about Trey Young. I don't think there's too much more at this point that we need to talk about there, though I'm going to watch him, of course, the whole year. But the other big point guard move that the Hawks made, which was a big surprise to me when it happened, basically just taking on the final year of Jeremy Lin's contract, it ended up being kind of a precursor to everything else that went on. And Lin, if he's healthy... I think is a wonderful fit could be, you know, the, the exactly the right type of backup point guard where he'll be fine being behind Trey Young, but can help, you know, actually, I would assume a healthy Lynn is a significantly better player just because he's so much more proven and can do that. And so I think he could fit in very well, but it was surprising considering he's had these last two years with such big injury problems and he makes about 14 million this year 
so I get it, but it was still surprising to me. It was certainly a stutter to me. Uh, that that move broke. That move broke as I was walking out of a summer league post game availability in Las Vegas, and my jaw hit the floor when I saw it. So we were on the same page with that, to be sure. I understand the theory of it. They, they wanted someone who can both play alongside Trey Young when possible. You know, Lynn has pretty good size. He's been a pretty decent shooter um, in his career as well, and can at least uh, you know credibly sort of guard um, off the ball a little bit. Um, and they wanted someone who is more of an established, you know, maybe not a full-blown starter level player at this point in time, but who has been that in the past and could be that in the future to kind of complement Trey Young and provide that that insurance. He's certainly expensive insurance. They did get a little bit of compensation for him in the form of some future second-round assets, but really it was just kind of taking him into cap space. I didn't love that uh, as a value as a value proposition, but I do understand the theory behind it. And they're going to use Jeremy Lin. I think you know all indications are he's going to be uh, healthy entering the season. He had the of course missed basically all of last season with injury, but it looks like he's on track to start training camp at full strength and at 100% health. That'll be useful because they don't have a ton of guys who you just kind of know what they are. Jeremy Lin, if he is healthy, we know is a pretty good NBA player. And, um, you know, I could probably make the argument that he should start ahead of Trey Young. I don't think that's going to happen. I think Trey Young is going to probably start. Um, but Lin, as you mentioned before, is, is almost certainly a better player at this moment because he kind of just knows what to do. He's a veteran and all that stuff. So there is an argument to be had at just having that kind of player to both mentor Young and also play alongside him. Lin's presence could also really help the non-starters on the Hawks because they're going to have, when those guys are both healthy, they'll have capable point guard play, especially from a passing perspective for all 48 minutes. Something that's concerning a little bit for me with the Hawks is that I don't, at least of the guaranteed guys under contract, I don't really see a third point guard. So like if either Lynn or Young misses time, I don't really see somebody who steps into that role. Maybe they can solve that with a two-way or something else. But do you have any read on where they're going at that extra spot? It's a question I had as well when they signed uh, and sort of rounded out their roster. They do have 15 guaranteed contracts, mm -hmm. and they did so without um, the two uh, – with, with, actually with only two point guards. Uh, this is just me kind of reading between the lines. They do have Jalen Adams on a two-way. That would be their short-term option, I think, if something were to happen to Young or Lynn. Um, you have that guy available to you. You can get him on a plane, and he won't he won't kill you. I'm sure he won't be very good. He's a, he, was, he was an undrafted rookie. I do like Jalen Adams, but I can't imagine he's going to be providing too much in the way of competency as a rookie. Uh, they do have Daniel Hamilton as well, who they think can probably probably step in and play a little bit of point forward. He did the, he actually performed that uh, that way a little bit in the G League last year. They've used Kent Bazemore in that role before. He can at least defend there and kind of initiate the offense, but I'm with you. It was a little bit of an eyebrow raise when they didn't bring in a third point guard, um, especially because of Lynn's recent injury history and the fact that Young is a pretty slight guy. Wouldn't, you know, wouldn't uh, surprise me all that much if he got banged up a little bit over the course of the season. So, yeah, I, I was surprised. I do think that they have some guys on minimum contracts that might be expendable uh, if they needed to kind of uh, cut bait and make that more permanent roster addition. But in the meantime, they're going to go with two guys, and if something happens to one of them, they're going to have to cobble something together. Right, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be like a big injury, which certainly can happen. It could be a guy, you know, has a tweak to his, his knee or his hamstring or something and just can't play in the rest of that game. And then you're saying they're going, well, crap, what are we going to do with the other minutes at that spot? And that's why I'm a big supporter of every team. If I were running a team, they would always have at least three. I use the term primary ball handlers because, you know, it doesn't have to be a guy who's point guard size, though it usually is. And then I would have at least one in on a two-way contract at any at any given time. Just because something we've seen throughout the league over the last few years is that the teams, teams when they don't have competent point guard play, when they don't have reliable shot creation, their offense just falls off a cliff. Like it, it is a, it, it might seem like a small thing because there are so many point guards around the league now, but 
that baseline of competence is extremely important. And I'm going to be watching how the Hawks handle that. And, and you can also make the argument, and I'm sure some people would, that this year, you know, if they have some rough stretches, it's not the worst thing in the world. So this is not the like a championship contender having the same flaw, you know, the, the Hawks doing it. But it still could lead to problems in terms of evaluating some of the other players on the roster. For sure, and I, I, it's actually kind of funny. I usually kind of hear you in my head when I talk when I, when I, when I hear about point guards because I know that's a point you make repeatedly. Is that that's a position where you just cannot afford to be have to have like replacement level players. You have to have competency at point guard, and I'm fully on board with that. As one of the reasons why I was surprised uh, slash uh, maybe not I mean maybe, probably confused is the right word to look for, to look for there when, when they didn't bring in a third point guard just because again you know Jeremy Lin's not the most durable guy in the world recently, and you have to have somebody there, especially. You know, I know I know the wins don't necessarily matter for the Hawks right now, but you have to evaluate these guys, as you mentioned. So if they have to go a stretch of games without competent point guard play, what's that do to John Collins? What's, what's that do to Torian Prince? You suddenly have guys playing probably outsized roles, and that can be helpful at times. I think we saw that with Torian Prince last year down the stretch where he was kind of having the ball in his hands a lot. That might have actually helped him long term, but in, in the meantime, it could, also, it could also be harmful to players' development when they are not playing with competent point guard play because it, there's just something that's very, very harmful to that, both in the team perspective and just be able to distribute the ball. One player who would be significantly affected that by that, and we don't know if he's going to be in the rotation, though I expect it, is Kevin Herter. And Herter, we didn't see him play in summer league due to... that was a, It was a thumb issue, right? Is that trying to Yeah, his, uh, sh- on, on his shooting hand, too. Yeah. So he was basically just unable to do much of anything. And they knew that when they drafted him, but it was a situation where uh, they kind of ruled him out immediately once they took him for the entire summer, which is unfortunate, but also something that they they, they, did, they did actually work they were prepared for it at the very least right and so I mean, typically when a guy's calling card is shooting that relies a lot on creation of other people and so if he gets the ba- kind of a lot of the backup two minutes which I think is entirely possible this year Lynn's presence might benefit Herder more than anybody else on the roster depending on how they structure their big man rotation it could also be John Collins for reasons you kind of brought up there and I'm excited to see what Herder can do there there are all these kind of threshold questions that don't really get addressed much with shooters, and we're going to be seeing this. Former Hawk Kyle Korver is going to be in this conversation as well. Like, how good or bad do you have to be defensively to be a starting caliber player, even if you are a really good shooter? So I'm going to be excited to see where Herder fits in on that now. And then, of course, like any other young guy, he'll improve with time, too. Yeah, I like Kevin Herter. I think he, obviously, the shooting is the number one thing that you would look and see with him. I think that's what the Hawks drafted him for. But they also like his, uh, actually, he's a little bit of a secondary creator. He's pretty good with the ball in his hands, was a good passer in college. Defensively, early on, it's going to be ugly, I think. He's pretty frail right now, not very strong. But, you know, positionally, he has pretty good size. He's 6'7". He's got, you know, he's not not this really small kind of guy. He has legitimate wing size if he gets stronger. And I think he knows what he's doing for the most part. So, I'll be interested to see him. I think we probably know the least about him of almost anybody on the roster at this moment because he didn't play in summer league and he wasn't a super prominent prospect in, at the college level until pretty late in his, uh, in, in last season. He was sort of on the radar for draft diehards, but not really someone who, um, was a definite first round pick until like May. So it's a situation where Herder is going to have, um, some growing pains, I'm sure. I think he's also a guy where the Hawks might have better options right now if they're trying to win every game. But if they if they're prioritizing development, which they probably should be, Herder is on the very short list of players in which this uh, this regime drafted him in the first round. They clearly have an investment in him, so they might want to lean on it, lean on lean on him a little bit more than you might expect. Even with guys who might be you know I guess marginally better than him right now, they do have they do have some uh, real incentive to go ahead and not let let Herder sort of learn on the job. They do, and I think. 
there's a, a large incentive, a structure difference between a first round pick and even a second. Like, you know, Tyler Dorsey had, he, he certainly showed some signs last year and he can, I, I think of him more as a two. Do you think of him more as a shooting guard or a small forward? I think he's a two I, only because yeah. he's like, you know, he's just the frailness he's of so, it. I, he's I think so he's so skinny. Two. Yeah. That, that was my yeah. thought as well. And so those two guys are probably going to be competing for minutes when this team, when is at full strength or close to it. From what I know right now, I would have Herder in the lead, but that can change. And there are almost always times over the course of a season that open the door for different players. But I want to move on to, they have, the Hawks have two new additions on at the big man spots. I was going to say on the interior, but calling Amari Spellman an interior <laughs> player is a little bit of a, a little bit of a misnomer. So he was the last pick of the first round last year with that selection they got from the, from the, actually that was from the Clippers to take on Jamal Crawford, but it was the Rockets pit. And then also I was, you talked about how surprised you were when the Jeremy Lin thing came through. I wasn't super surprised that the Hawks signed Alex Len. I was very surprised that they gave him two guaranteed seasons. Yeah, that was a little bit surprising to me, uh, only because of the market at that point in time. It's pretty late in the process, and centers just, just weren't getting money. I know that was a theme on this podcast and kind of everywhere that's just centers, it was the market was just terrible. So as a result of that, I was uh, surprised in that they probably could have gotten him cheaper. Maybe they were paying um, the Hawks tax because uh, guys don't necessarily, you know, they're not yearning to come to Atlanta right now. Um, but maybe that was a situation where they just kind of liked the asset and wanted to pay for it, and the opportunity cost wasn't super high um, for Lamb. But I was I was surprised by the price tag as well as you were. And, you know, this the Spellman draft pick was also a surprise to me. He was someone I had around number 50 on my draft board, and he went at number 30. And I think um, the consensus was kind of a surprise, too. He's an intriguing player in some ways, especially offensively with his ability to space the floor, at least in theory. But uh, that was an eyebrow raiser for me as well. So a couple of additions that I would not have banked on uh, when, you know, when May and June were arriving. Len getting that second season makes me much more confident that he is locked in as the backup center. I mean, because why would you why would you pay a guy four million a year? And he actually is getting, I think, a little bit more than four million a year if you're not intending to play them every night, especially at center where, you know, you can make do in a lot of other different ways. And so he's going to probably be there with Deadman. That doesn't mean you preclude anybody else from getting minutes there. But that leads into what I think, he's not a new addition, but this is a different conversation, but to me, one of the more important questions that the Hawks need to answer this year, and they don't have to have it answered by now, but I think by the end of this year, is what is John Collins' ideal role on both ends of the floor? So what is his best position defensively, and then what do you want him doing offensively? I totally agree. I've I've long been in the camp that I think he is a center. Um, but at the same time, they clearly don't agree <laughs> with the, uh, you know, they still have Dwayne Devin around and I, I'm sure they could have flipped him if they wanted to. They haven't done that. At least as of now, that could happen in the middle of the season to be sure he's an expiring contract and a quality, uh, big man. And of course the addition of Alex Len. So they now have two centers making real money that are not named John Collins. Plus they have Miles Plumlee, who's not going to play, but he is owed a lot of money. So they have a lot of, a lot of capital assigned to the center position. And I think Collins is, you know, written in pen as a starting power forward. And that doesn't necessarily matter all that much in theory, but they had a clear emphasis with Collins in summer league and really in everything in all of their comments, both, you know, all through the off season at events, Collins has been sort of the face of the team in terms of just showing up and being there at all these, you know, PR driven things, but he's been the kind of guy, he was the guy modeling their uniforms, et cetera, et cetera. They love John Collins, but 
they're talking about him being more of a perimeter player now. They definitely wanted that to happen in summer league. We saw that a little bit. His jumper does look improved, looks smoother, looks more comfortable taking it. But there was a lot of perimeter emphasis, which makes me think that they're going to play him at the four as much as they can. Um, I don't love that necessarily, especially on the defensive end. Um, but at the same time, if he ca- if he can play out there offensively, there is some utility in a guy who can play both spots. And I've always liked that about him since he came in the league. I didn't love that draft pick either when it happened, but I'm certainly been converted. He was the number 19 pick. That's been a a, a pretty good investment at this point in time. I'm not sure how high his ceiling is, but he was productive and efficient as a rookie, which is a nice combination. And I think he's such a great, he's such a good athlete that um, that there's some utility in that. But yeah, I'm with you. The question of his long-term position and the kind of guy that you need to pair him with is very interesting. But at the same time, he probably isn't good enough necessarily to worry all that much about like building around him. So there's, there's, it's helpful to be a guy who can do both things, play both roles and kind of be effective in a variety of different ways. But at the same time, it's, it's the situation where he's, he's not quite that kind of player where like you're building your roster around him. So it's kind of a conundrum there. Something I want to watch with him this year is that at Wake, he was very impressive in post-ups, back-to-the-basket type stuff. And then, and I worried, I didn't watch a ton of Collins. Like, he was too far down on the board. Nate and I usually only get through the first five to ten guys to really see how and why he was doing that. And he struggled in that area last year on the Hawks. Granted, it's a very different game and, and playing power forward versus playing center, all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to be interested in that, too. And he actually looks more fluid on his jump shot than I expected at this point in his career. So that leads leads more into that to that power forward direction, but something else to remember. So I, I look at a couple of different things when a team should be making this decision, and I think a lot of teams look in the same direction. So defensively, power forward center, it's how good are they at moving laterally? You know, like can they can they handle the different situations that present themselves? And sure, centers are doing that more now than than they ever have, but really that is a quintessential power forward thing in that if a player cannot do that at this point, they pretty much have to be a center. And Collins is athletic, but I think I just need to watch him more to get a sense of his side-to-side athleticism. And then offensively, it's not as as rigid because you, if you you could shoot jump shots as a center, you can play on the inside as a power forward. It's just about finding the right complementary piece, but that's why it all makes sense to think about it together. Absolutely. I, I do think that Collins is a player who has the athleticism to be at least useful, useful in space defensively, but until we see it on a regular basis, it's kind of hard to tell, which is why this is a, such a big year for him and his development. At Wake, he was certainly a back-to-the-basket, interior-focused player. He's slimmed down a little bit since then. He's in, he's in really good shape. He clearly is more comfortable on the perimeter than I ever thought he was going to be now as well. But that doesn't mean that you can hold up defensively full-time at, at the four until you actually see it. So uh, that was my biggest fear with him coming into the league was his defense. I thought he was a pretty bad defender at the college level, and he's really exceeded my expectations on the defensive end of the floor. But just doing that and then taking that next step to be actually someone who you're comfortable with full-time at the four is a different thing. So. Um, you know, I, I do think there's a, it's very, very nice to have a player whose floor is like effective third big man, which I think he actually is at this point in time. But, you know, judging his ceiling and what he can be in the next couple of years comes down to a lot of factors that we've already discussed. But there's some pretty big variance in where his floor is, which is kind of where he was last year. This, this efficient, um, productive player that has some weaknesses to where he probably could end up if everything goes well, which is like full blown starting four. Still have season predictions and a few other topics with Brad Rowland, but first, a message from Helix Sleep. So this honeymoon that I'm on right now is unbelievable. 
spent time in bali than in japan but especially in japan i gotta say the beds are not quite built for someone like me i'm about six six but my california king from helix sleep is not just built for someone like me it's built for me specifically because i filled out their two minute sleep quiz at helixsleep.com slash cap space and they're able to find a blended mattress that works for both me and my wife They'll ask you how hot do you sleep, how much do you weigh, and customize it. Do you sleep on your side, your back? Then they'll customize it for you. And I tried one of those one-size-fits-all mattress companies. Those ones are trying to diversify a little bit now, but it's not really working, you know, because they haven't been doing this for over three years the way Helix Sleep has. In fact, uh, I have a three-year-old Helix Sleep mattress, another one that we got recently. The first one was one that I actually got myself and then got in touch with them saying, hey, I love your product. I would love to endorse it back when I was selling my own ads for the show. And they've been on it for almost three years now. But the only thing that has changed about Helix Sleep is now they're offering an even better discount of up to $125 on all mattress orders. That's $125. You could get that much off potentially at helixsleep.com slash capspace. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace for $125 off your mattress order. Let them know at that slash capspace URL that you came from us. One other thing I wanted to ask you before we get into some of the more season prediction-y things is where you see Torian Prince fitting in from a defensive perspective. I think offensively, we have a pretty good sense of at least where he is right now, maybe not where he's going. But any player who is kind of in that, I, I think of him as in that in-between areas, like 6'8", like 6'9", six, six, can kind of do both. Generally speaking, even though most of those players should end up being power forwards, they end up small forwards because there are no small forwards in the league right now. But like in an ideal world, what do you see his role? both offensively and defensively on a good team i think i think he's a three that's more it's uh, he's kind of probably slighter than you might think he is um coming into the league i was expecting someone who was probably closer to that hybrid three four that you're talking about and then you know being up close and seeing the way he plays he doesn't play with a ton of force defensively um he is long enough to i guess credibly play up and also you know under budenholzer the hawks didn't play a ton of small ball and when they did it was because of paul Millsap, um who has this very unique de- uh, defensive i guess you can't be very unique but very rare skill set defensively um, where he can kind of do a lot of things and play up and play small and be versatile but with Prince they haven't really gone to that Prince of the four lineup a lot I want to see it more just to see how he's going to fare there I was really disappointed last year by his defense I thought as a rookie there were some really good signs there and as a college player that's kind of where I thought his value would come the most was with his motor defensively he came out of that weird system at Baylor where they play a ton of zone but I liked what I saw as a rookie defensively and then last year his effort level really waned I thought he was pretty disappointed on men in the floor. Some of that could be effort, just like we talked about with Schroeder at the beginning of this, is that you know, you're know you on a bad team. Um, defense can be tricky in that situation, and he's still young. But at the same time, he's going to have to play better defense kind of regardless of where he is. But I do think he's going to be a three, um, and that's a very nice piece if you can have a guy who can hold up at the three defensively and offensively shoot the way he did, especially near the end of the season last year. I think he shot um, almost 39% from three on the season. A lot of those, at least in the second half of the season, were on the move. Um, he had the ball in his hand more than I thought he was going to. I do think he's going to have a more limited offensive role in a universe that includes Trey Young and kind of everybody being healthy. But, you know, Prince's defense is a point of contention for me. I thought it was going to be better than it has been so far. But I do think he does have the tools to be a solid two-way player, and that includes um, playing mostly the three because of his size. But I think for the first time in his tenure, you're going to see him at the four sometimes this year. And how he how he handles that under Lloyd Pierce will be something that I'm very interested in because it would be nice to have someone who can play both roles like that. 
especially if Collins can slide a little bit to the five eventually, because then you can you get more value there. And they can the Hawks have enough tools in the future, like first round picks, cap space eventually, that they can they can use those to get threes if they have to. Like if, if Prince is better as a four, if Collins is better as a five, they can they can shake all this stuff and work it out. And and either way, and they have they have enough flexibility now to do that. And Oftentimes in these shows, we talk about who you expect to get better and who you expect to get worse. On a team this young, the answer is generally, you know, everybody is going to get better because age-related <laughs> improvement is a very real thing, especially considering the change in coaching staff and the, the team was pretty hopeless last year. So I think there will be improvements all over the board. But I'll still ask the question in terms of if there's anybody that really stands out to you as like, oh, they can take a real step forward or that you're concerned about a step back. Yeah, in terms of the step forward, I think the obvious candidates are the guys we just talked about. It's Collins and Prince are the guys who were on the roster last year that are still on the roster now that I think they are hoping for a step forward from and I think are the guys who are most capable of a step forward from. There, there are other guys on this roster that could certainly improve. Your Tyler Dorsey's, your DeAndre Bembry's. Um, if those guys can pop and become rotation players, that'd be a huge win for the Hawks, but in terms of guys who could certainly take the next step credibly, and I, I wouldn't necessarily project it necessarily, but the guys who you kind of have to keep your eye on that were on the team last year taking a step forward are Prince and Collins. You know, taking a step back, there isn't an obvious candidate there in the way that you might think. A couple of guys who are a little bit on the, not older necessarily, but, you know, Dwayne Dedman and Kent Bazemore are both 29 years old, and they were both pretty darn good last season, especially Bazemore. I think that was the best year of his career, in my opinion. He shot the ball very well last year. I thought he was the best player on the team last year, which was a low bar to clear, but mostly because he he has he had some two-way value and really kind of played well under the radar. No one really noticed because it was the Hawks, but I thought he played very well. And at, at his age... And at his relatively slight build, you know, Bazemore is only like 6'4", 6'5". He could be a guy that might slow down a little bit quicker than some other wings. And Deadman, same age kind of thing. He shot the ball really well last year, kind of out of nowhere. Uh, he doesn't quite have the mileage of a typical 29-year-old because he got a very late start. He was a late bloomer that didn't really play a lot of minutes until later in his career, but still also at that age where it wouldn't surprise me if he took a step back. So I wouldn't necessarily project it for either one of those guys, but you know, the one thing about having a roster where no one's over the age of like 31 except for Vince Carter is that you don't really have a lot of uh, guys who you might take, uh, you might project a step back from because everybody's kind of in that target range where they should be at least what they kind of are or improving. Yeah, I was working on a piece on the Hawks for the athletic and it was one of the things I, I realized as I was putting it together was the Hawks have somebody who I expect to be in the rotation at every position that is 26 or younger and it could be substantially younger than 26 depending on I would that was using Alex Len and a couple other guys but it's striking just how many guys are going to be in that position and depending on how the season goes it could even get stronger in that direction there are a couple different ways that could happen and something else I want to keep an eye on with this team is you, you brought up the idea with Bembry and Dorsey and I was going to bring this up that so much attention goes to, oh, who can be a starter? Who can be a star? But whether it's a young team or an older team, players who establish themselves as a reliable rotation player are extremely valuable, especially if they're on a cheap contract for multiple years. And Dorsey's going to be a free agent this year, so that's a little less helpful for him and Anderson than it would be for somebody else. But that provides a lot of value because it, as a team like the Hawks are, that have a lot of open spots or question marks moving forward, Anything you can pencil in, even if it's 15 to 20 minutes a game at shooting guard, that's still incredibly valuable when you're building a team and using resources. I agree. Uh, it's 
it's a situation where I wish the Hawks had more guys like this that could take a step forward. You mentioned Dorsey and Bembry. Those are the the two guys who I think are most off the radar that could do that. I've never been a huge Dorsey fan, frankly. I don't think he has a ton of upside. And as you mentioned, only having him under contract for one more season is not ideal for a second-round pick. Bembry I've always liked, but he's just never been able to stay healthy, and this is a very big year. It would not stun me if they didn't uh, pick up his uh, his team option, his fourth-year player option. Uh, sorry, fourth-year team option. Um, just because this was not the regime that drafted him, and he hasn't shown all that much. Even if I like him, that doesn't mean that Travis Schlenk does. So that's a guy to keep an eye on in the early going. But they don't really have those secondary guys who you're keeping an eye on. It's basically Kevin Herter and Amari Spellman that are under contract for a long time that also could be your like more supporting pieces. I don't think Kevin Herter is going to be a star. So, yeah, it's a situation where that's really valuable. You, you need to have those cheap, especially role-playing um, role playing guys who can grow alongside your uh, more established play- pieces. I think Trey Young is really the only guy with upside to be like a legitimate star on the roster. But I wish they had a couple more of these like middling, um, more rotation-based guys who are under contract because there are guys I like, like Anderson and Bembry, but they're not going to be around all that long unless the Hawks decide to make another investment in them. I don't think there's a ton of conversation that we need to have in terms of who is better or worse than popular perception, just because the Hawks have been so under the radar that it's, you know, it's kind of a little bit of everything. You brought up Bazemore. I think he's a good example. He had a really nice year last year, just in a smaller visibility issue. Somebody I'm very familiar with because I covered him early, early in his career and so happy with, with what he's been able to do. I mean, earning the contract that he did and, and everything else. And I still would, I still think he's a better defender on ones than twos, but as he's getting a little older, I think that's shifting a little bit. And he's he's also gotten much smarter and everything like that. But what I want to get into, because I'm genuinely fascinated by this with the Hawks, is thinking about how Lloyd Pierce is going to run this rotation. And so not every team uses 10 guys, but I think that's a healthy way of thinking about the Hawks. So kind of like what the starting five would be and then who the next five would be in the rotation. It's very, very interesting. I, I think the starting five will almost certainly be uh, Dwayne Dedman, John Collins, Torian Prince, Kent Bazemore, and either Trey Young or Jeremy Lin. I think it will be Trey Young, um, just for a number of reasons, whether it be, you know, he's the face of the franchise now, uh, top five pick. This is a team that's not trying to win, et cetera, et cetera. But those six guys are the absolute locks to be in the rotation in prominent roles as the starting five plus Jeremy Lin. Um, after that, it gets a little bit more tricky. I do think Alex Len is probably the safest bet um, for reasons we talked about earlier. The investment in him, I think he's going to be the backup center from night, from night one, and that makes sense on a number of levels. Um, the rest of the rotation is really up for debate. I think, you know, in terms of guys who I guess the organization should prioritize the most, I would lean towards Kevin Herter because he's the guy they just invested in. He's a first round pick. He's very talented. With that said, if they were trying to win earlier, if they think Herter is not ready to contribute early on, it wouldn't you know blow me away if he was not necessarily in a prominent role in October because he, he missed summer league, he's a rookie, all that stuff, and everything else is kind of up for debate. Like they have Vince Carter, for instance. Like Vince Carter pr- might be their best option at, as like a backup hybrid forward, but do they want to play Vince Carter every night at 42 years old on a team that's rebuilding? I have no idea. Uh, I've asked that question. <laughs> he wants to play. He said all the right things at his intro press conference when he came and. I don't think he has any interest in just like never playing, but you know, his age is a very interesting factor there. Uh, we talked about Justin Anderson. He's someone who I think should probably play, um, but we'll see. Um, Amari Spillman is like another guy, you know, first round pick. Amari Spillman, if they want to develop him, should be on the floor this year, but is he more, more likely to be on the floor in Atlanta or is he more likely to be on the floor in the G League in Erie because he's not ready to play? So I think there's like a definitive top seven. 
um, that I know are going to play. And after that, I kind of would believe anything, to be honest with you, which is not a great answer. But until we know more, I, I, I feel much more comfortable about this. If Mike Bunozer was the coach, I kind of knew his tendencies more and what he was going to be doing. Lloyd Pierce has been a little bit coy, which he should be. He's a first, he's a first time head coach in addition to being a new head coach in Atlanta. I don't know where he's going to lean. I, I would guess he leads, he leans toward the young guys because it just makes a ton of sense organizationally to play the young guys quite a bit of minutes. But, um, after that top seven, there's a lot of uncertainty, honestly. I agree with you. So if you draw it after the seven, my instinct without having any particular insight, I would go Carter, Anderson, and Herter, not in that order necessarily, but you could see those guys as the, as the other part of the second unit. You can go with a lot of different theories of starters and backups, especially on this team because they want to try guys in different roles. So they could even fiddle around with playing Anderson, Vince Carter, or Vince Carter with Prince and maybe have Prince play some four. It could go in a lot of different directions there. Same with, I would love to see John Collins play some five on the second unit, but that's really hard for teams. I try to convey this to listeners sometimes is that playing a guy as a starter and then having him, you know, pulling him early and giving him some bench minutes, it's, it sounds so good in theory. It's like, oh yeah, you know, you could start a guy and then have him be your backup at a different position. It can happen. I mean, Derek Favors did that a lot last year with the Jazz, but you have to be so meticulous with the rotations to make it work that it's always more of like kind of Nate would use the word a curio. It's more of it's more of a curiosity than something that most coaches can or would be willing to pull off. Which makes sense. And, you know, a first time head coach, again, someone who's not necessarily familiar with doing that kind of rotation planning. Uh, I, I still like that higher. But until we see a guy coach, you just don't know for sure. So that's something to keep an eye on. And also, you know, we mentioned a bunch of guys there. The Hawks don't have a, you know, a perfect natural backup power forward. They have some guys who are really in like hybrid three fours, like Carter, for instance, is, might be better at the four right now, but he's not this like traditional power forward backup. They don't really have that guy on the roster. It might be Amari Spellman, but, um, he's sort of a weird case as well. So they don't, they don't really have that like right in and pen backup power forward even available to them. We're going to see some, some more small ball lineups, but. When Collins is really the only player that I think that they would classify as a full-time four, that makes it even harder for him to play play the five, even if I'm kind of with you that I'd love to see him play some five. I'm just not sure how much that's actually going to happen. What do you expect? Well, we'll, So we talked about what we think the starting five will be. I feel pretty confident that that will be their closing five as well. And I'm guessing they'll want to give Trey Young those reps, even if Lynn is a better player this year. I I think that's going to be the the case. I think especially by the end of the season, maybe you'll see early on that they might go with Lynn in some spots. But by the time they're, you know, firmly out of it and kind of playing out the string as most rebuilding teams do, they're going to want to look at Trey Young and give him those reps. I think, you you know, every once in a while you might see a night where they close with boy, with both point guards. You know, Jeremy Lin, I would probably be able to argue he's a top five or six player on this roster overall. So if they wanted to lead, uh, sort of lean in on that and go with those two guys, if they're able to hold up defensively is kind of the problem there. But you can make a case that their best offensive lineup includes both of them. Um, but yeah, in general, I think the closing five is going to be the starting five for the most part, just because there isn't that obvious candidate elsewhere. It gets interesting if you try to project forward and think about what the Hawks might do at the deadline, where they have some expiring contracts that they might want to look to deal, like Dwayne Dedman, like um, Jeremy Lin, or even Kent Bazemore, who's been in some trade rumblings. I know he's not expiring, but he has one more year after this. So, you know, they might get a little bit weird after the deadline if they decide to make a deal or two. But right now, I think their their best five is going to be their starting five, and that's the one that makes the most sense. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a cap CBA guy, something that I've been wondering about with the Hawks is whether they would be willing to take on multi-year contracts. Because they have, they have, they're like the Orlando Magic, a, a team in their division that 
They're probably not going to make the playoffs and they have players that could help a team on expiring contracts, which is very different from filler salary. And so you could, yeah, you could tell a team we have Dwayne Dedman, depending on what happens with Lynn, Jeremy Lynn, and we can take on something like that. But the problem is, and why Travis Schleich might not be willing to do it, is that sacrifices meaningful flexibility. And even if the Hawks do not anticipate being in the Kevin Durant sweepstakes, let's say, cap space <laughs> has a lot of value. And there are various ways that can happen. You can pick up draft picks like what the Brooklyn Nets did this past year. You can take on a good player. I think that's going to happen a lot more in the summer of 2019 than it has in recent years. It's just good player. Team needs to clear money to sign player X. And so they have somebody who they would like to keep, but they just can't. And so the Hawks could be a logical place there. And that's also the big reason why evaluating what they have, even if it's going to take a lot longer than this year to know how good Trey Young is going to be, is important because if they decide to make a commitment in any form, whether that's taking on dead money or whatever, that will have to come with a better understanding of where this team is and what they need. Yeah, it absolutely will. And I mean, the last going back to the cap space, the last two summers, Travis Schlenk has used his cap space to do things other than sign free agents. So he's a perfect test case. You know, two years ago, they used uh, part of their cap space to uh, bring in that that draft pick that ended up being the number 30 pick in, in exchange for Jamal Crawford. Um, you know, last summer, they didn't use it in the way that I probably would have overall. But, you know, they were able to offload um, the Dennis Schroeder contract that was signed under, under a previous regime, kind of eat some space for that year in terms of, you know, clearing it for the future. And then, of course, they did the, they did the Jeremy Lin deal. So he's a perfect test case to keep the books clean. And, you know, one of the things after this, I mean, Miles Plumlee's contract is really bad. But after that, there really isn't a lot of just horrible salary. You know, Baysmore does not pass your uh, famous NA test, I will will probably say at this point. But isn't an awful contract considering the way that he plays and just the the fact that it's only two more years now. um, It's now not this like albatross contract. So keeping the books clean is important, although I kind of I'm kind of with you. They, They might be interesting to take on some future salary. But only if the assets are right. I think that's something that Schleck has been good about doing for the most part is just kind of, you know, not pulling the trigger immediately and kind of seeing what else is out there. And uh, he'll be able to look and do that now. But, yeah, keep, you know, keeping the the roster clean as well, being able to put guys in situations where they're going to succeed, um, you know, not, you know, hampering Trey Young's development for, for the uh, betterment of the tank is probably something that I am okay with as well. And that's something that, you know, Hawks fans – are split on, but I've long said the Hawks could have tanked harder than they have. Um, they clearly are are in. They're clearly in this rebuilding phase where they're not trying to win every game necessarily. But they have not been the hinky Sixers either. They they've kept some veterans that they didn't have to uh, do. Like last you know last summer they signed. Dwayne Devin, they signed uh, Ursula Yasova, they brought back Piscala back. They, this year they added Jeremy Lin. They're not they're not trying to be the worst team imaginable. Like they're going to be in this rebuilding mode for a while, but they're not doing it in the completely stripped down fashion. Even if they're going to be pretty poor, so they're also trying to keep their some level of respectability, whether that be to sell tickets or whatever they're trying to do. They're not leaning quite as hard into it as they probably could. And something Schlenk is going to have to consider. It's I, I've been thinking about this a lot over over the off season this year for next year is that. That there are going to be a lot of teams with cap space next summer, and while the Hawks are a little bit different because of their place in the process, and and Schlenk's already established willingness to take on money, you know, to make other things happen, which is which is a good thing. Teams should be more willing to do it. But I, my feeling is right now, and of course this can change between now and early February, is that the teams that are willing to take on probably specifically 2019-20 salary, because after that it gets way more complicated. But for that year, I think teams that are willing to take that on now are going to get a better return than teams that take it on next summer, because there's just going to be so much more competition. And like I talked about that, that niche of good guys on a good contract that are just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Those kinds of deals, the Hawks might not be the best team for those kind of deals just because 
there a little bit, but maybe it's sort of paralleling what happened with Damari Carroll or a couple of these other ones where it's just, you know, we're okay. We, we just want to move off from this at that point. And I thought Brooklyn benefited well. And so I'm fascinated to see how the Hawks approach that because they have some temporary leverage that they can wield, but there is that downside risk because flexibility as a general manager is incredibly valuable. That can be anything, you know, it's, it, it's not as extreme as like the family guy mystery box thing where it's a, it could even be a boat, <laughs> but it is that idea that we can pivot in any sort of direction. And when there are so many pieces that need to be evaluated and figured out. So how the Hawks reconcile those pressures of maximizing the possibility that they have, especially if they don't feel super confident about bringing back Lynn and Deadman at whatever price those guys are going to want next year, then it is kind of, you could think of it as a temporary asset, but that's a hard thing to sell for a GM. General manager is like, hey, we could have 30 million in cap space, 40 million in cap space. Let's cut 10 to 20 million off of that to get an asset or a player or whatever. But I hope those teams consider it because they're, the, the offers aren't might not necessarily get any better. I'm with you. I mean, it's not a situation where you you have to trade these guys. Um, I mean, it's a situation they're going to look to trade some of the expiring contracts. Um, what they take back is going to be interesting. You know, last last year they famously didn't get anything back for Ilyasova and Bellinelli, who were a little bit their lesser players, especially in the, in the case of Bellinelli. But Ilyasova declined a couple of um, trade proposals that he was uh, handed. He had he had the veto power and used it. So it wasn't as if, it wasn't as if they weren't able to trade those guys. So yeah. I I'm kind of with you that they should be willing to take on some long-term stuff if it helps them in terms of assets because of the fact that, you know, I doubt they're going to be a player in like the max, um, the max level free agent market. And that's not the, again, that's not the only reason why they would want to use cap space and have cap space, but the urgency to have 40 million in cap space is a, a lot lower than it would be in some other spots. So, um, using it strategically is important. And Travis Schlenk is still new with this. And this is, uh, you know, we're entering this, the second full season of the Travis Schlenk era. And we've kind of only seen him in this uh, pure rebuilding mode, which he's still in now. So we know he can do that. But uh, as he transitions eventually to the future, it's something to look at because we just don't know how he's going to handle that. One other key reason why I support that concept, you know, without specific offers, I can't say, oh, they should do this. But another thing to consider is that Atlanta, by taking on money next year, 2020 makes a lot more sense for me in terms of a year for them to make a really big splash. By that point, they'll have a much better idea of what they have in their current young core. They will have drafted at least one more high-end player. I mean, I, I'm guessing we're both going to anticipate the Hawks being in the lottery. I I think that's not a bold prediction. <laughs> and so if they can do that, and then theoretically, maybe even a second lottery pick on top of that, well, not, and, and that doesn't even include the one for the Mavericks, which will probably be one as well. And then uh, from what I recall, the 2020 offseason is going to be more limited in terms of free agents, but the Hawks will have a much better idea of what they are, and they will have a larger competitive advantage. So closing one door, but opening another a little bit more cleanly might actually be a good path for them, especially because the Hawks are so young that their young guys aren't getting paid for a while. I mean, Torian Prince restricted in 2020, John Collins in 21, and then the guys they drafted this year in 22. So that's a long way out. They have a long time to figure this out. And depending on how good those guys end up being, it might not be one of those circumstances where, oh, let's fill up our boat and then pay all those guys. Because, I mean, you, the Hawks would have to be really good to, to justify the luxury tax. So you don't even have to think about that for a long time out. But I think it's healthier to think of 2020 as the target year than than 19, other than as an asset proposition. We're on the same page completely. And you throw in the fact that both Baysmore and Plumlee expire after 2020. Um, that summer, they're coming off the books. So, you know, sort of the stars align there to have a very, very clean cap sheet. They have like 15 million right now in guaranteed salary for the 2021-21 season. So, I mean, that's very, very, very relative at this point because you're going to have to pay Prince and do all that fun stuff. But the cap, the cap sheet does get a lot cleaner after uh, Plumlee. 
Plumley and Bazemore no longer on it. So all of that kind of lines up for 2020, make, making this year a little bit less important. We can move on to something that I, I think is going to be interesting to think about with the Hawks going at this from a broader perspective. What do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of this team compared to an average NBA team? The strengths are difficult, I will say. <laughs> there are some lineups. I, I try to make notes on this and thinking about what they're legitimately going to be you know, pretty good to good at. And I'm not sure there are a ton of areas, but one of the things that I think is going to be interesting about this team is that they can field a bunch of lineups that have five shooters. Um, that's, that's the plus of having John Collins and Dwayne Debbin both on the same roster as, uh, as potential centers that can space the floor. They do have a lot more shooting than they used to have. Um, you know, having Lynn, having Young, having Herter, uh, even Dorsey can shoot a little bit, Prince, Collins. Like they have, they have some uh, offensive lineups that I think actually can be pretty darn good if everything clicks. You know, a lot of that depends on Trey Young. Um, and his uh, rookie seasonness <laughs> it's not a word, but I understand like you know if he's if he's really bad, which is a possibility, then that submarines this to a certain extent. But there are lineups in which they can be pretty pretty competitive offensively. I do think you know last year they weren't good offensively, and I think that's you know saying it's a strength is probably a reach. But, you know, it's not impossible to think that they could have some fun performances in that in that way. You know, defensively, it's probably a little bit tougher. They clearly favored offense in the draft this year. They don't have a ton of um, high-end defenders. In fact, I would probably say they don't have a single defender that I would quali- qualify as, like, very good. They have some guys who are solid, like Bazemore, like Deadman. They have some solid defenders. But really, for the most part, def- defense is going to be a problem. You know, when Budenholzer was coaching this team, they they uh, always forced turnovers and they didn't foul. Even last year, they were in the top ten in both of those categories defensively. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, but if there is a path to them being a little bit better defensively, that's probably that's probably it, just being disciplined and because of the talent just not really being there defensively. So again, like yeah, I think depth is kind of a sneaky one only because. Um, at least, at least in comparison to last year, they do have a bunch of NBA players now. I'm not sure how much that matters when compared to everybody, but there's not, uh, not every team has, you know, two guys that you probably can qualify as solid NBA players at every spot. But uh, as I'm sure you can tell, strengths are not, uh, not, not a plenty on this roster right now. And I think you probably would agree with that. It's, it's kind of tough to point out one thing. I wish there was an obvious one, but there really isn't. Yeah, I think shooting is probably the closest thing there. And if Spellman, depending on what position he plays and what he does, he's intriguing as well. Like, if he becomes kind of like a, a stretch five, Nate has compared him to most Spates before, and I think that is an interesting one where Spates has, you know, maybe an underappreciated jump shot, but then defensively there are also things hopefully Spellman can be better than him on that end. My big concern with, with them is defensively. I mean, and especially because Bazemore has talent, but he's not really that like do-it-all type of defender. He's more like he can, he can do well on his guy, he can do some help things, but it's a little bit different. Prince would make a massive difference there, but still, I mean, it, it's, it's hard for me to think that they'll cobble together many strong defensive lineups, much less like an overall strong defensive rating. So not a big deal when a team is where the Hawks are in the process, but it is still a concern. And that's something that they need to consider when building out the rest of this roster. And I mean, we talked about that as something related to John Collins. And I think that's actually a good lead in because there are a couple different ways to go with this. But what do you think are the biggest questions that the Hawks need to answer this year? We've probably touched on a few of them already. I, I do think that, you know, Prince and Collins are the two that jump out to me, like especially Prince's defense is something that I am really wanting to see what happens with. Uh, I know you, you mentioned Collins is a big, big question earlier. I would agree with that. But those those two guys are the only two 
players on this roster that were on the team a year ago that figure to potentially be on the next good Hawks team that aren't rookies. Um, you know, the three guys they drafted this year, of course, of course they are hoping and banking on being part of the team in the future. But, you know, previous, the, the previous regime guys, it's basically just those two. I really like Kent Bazemore, but, you know, given that he's already 29 years old, he probably won't be on the next good Hawks team. And if he is, he'll be in a, in a much more reduced role. So those are the biggest things for me is just, you know, what does, what role, um, and what kind of projection does Collins have moving forward? And can Prince turn into the defensive player that I thought he was going to be coming into the league? Because if you compare that with his offense, which is again, you know, higher than I thought it was going to be at this point in time. That's a very nice, you know, potentially like firmly entrenched starter level player, which isn't the sexiest thing in the world. But you need those guys who can play competent basketball on both ends. And I think he can certainly be someone that does that. So those two are the biggest ones from the established roster from from the previous year. And then, of course, just everything with Trey Young is a question. It, it won't be you know fully answered either way after year one. But he is sort of the sun, moon and stars now. He's the one guy on the roster that has star upside. They clearly like him enough to, you know, do what they did in the in the summer to add him. So he's the overarching question of everything. But um, those that trio of players and to a lesser extent, Kevin Herter are the guys that are just, you know, they're they're the questions. They're the ones that have to provide answers in the next year, uh, year plus on those on on really all those fronts. Those are all very good. And I'll add in one more that I think is really important, which is, is Lloyd Pierce a value-added coach? I mean, they're Mm, really, I think of the coaching right now as being a narrow group of real positives, then a large group of neutrals or, you know, plus or minus small mounts. And then not merely many small negative, large negatives anymore. Those guys are largely out of the league, thank goodness. And I don't know with Lloyd Pierce. That's part of the fun of getting a head coach that doesn't have head coaching experience, at least at the NBA level. And what does a Lloyd Pierce team look like? What does he value, not only in terms of scheme, but also in terms of who plays? That's a very important part of this too. And does he get the young guys to buy in defensively? I I hate to bring up the Warriors with any regularity, but I was around (laughs) for the Mark Jackson years. And one of the most important things that Jackson did was instill the value of defense in those young guys. And those Warriors teams didn't figure it out because Clay and Draymond, because Draymond didn't play that much then, and Steph bought in defensively, but it ended up being a really important part of the foundation of what happened after that. And, you know, having when having Bogut and, and Iguodal and all that. And I, I think the, the Hawks are an interesting parallel there with the defensive idea that they just need these guys, Prince, Collins, Trey Young, to do what they can within their skill sets. And then they can put other guys around it. And especially if John Collins is a four, not a five, because that makes it a lot easier to work some of this stuff defensively. And so if Pierce can do that, it's a, a, a value added for the next great Hawks team, whether he coaches that group or not. It makes sense completely. And, and I mean, the Lloyd Pierce thing is very interesting. I, I like the hire. The one thing that we knew about what the Hawks were doing during their coaching search was that they wanted to go young and they wanted a player development focused coach, which makes sense because of where they are on their timeline. You know, we can't really answer many questions about Lloyd Pierce, but it is an important question just to see what he's going to bring to the table because I, I like the theory of Lloyd Pierce. He said all the right things. I've, you know, I've interacted with him a few times. I've been pretty impressed with what I've come away with, but until you see a guy do what he's hired to do, you just don't know. So that's, that's definitely a big, important question. You know, you could never really rely on a first time head coach being the guy who leads you fully into the next step for the Hawks, but. They clearly wanted someone in his age range and someone with his player development background, his relationships. He seems to be a guy who's very, very well respected by players and execs and everybody around the league. So they seem to hit, they, they definitely hit a home run in terms of what they wanted to do on paper. It's just a situation where, as to whether it actually works out because you just, 
again, you just don't know until you see a guy do it. And there's so few, as you mentioned, guys who are really, you know, value added coaches. And you know, it'd be nice to have another one. I, I thought Budenholzer was really, really good, uh, especially in the regular season when he was in Atlanta. Um, but you know, the transition out of that, out, out of his system and out of sort of the rigidity of that and all that fun stuff should be interesting on another, on another note. The last big thing that we want to address on this is going through predictions. And I actually like to, to toss it to the guests to do all three at once. And so the, this is categorized as the anticipated record, you know, projection, a reasonable best case. So not the most extreme, but, you know, something that could happen. And then a, a reasonable worst case scenario as well. I'm going to give every caveat because I do think there's a lot of variance because of what we talked about earlier with not knowing who's going to be on this team in February. We saw last year even when the Hawks shut some guys down, had some injuries and made some trades that the roster was really bleak by the end of the year. They were playing you know, four or five guys on a nightly basis that aren't NBA players. And if that happens again, all bets are off. But um, I will go with 25 wins as my prediction. Um, that's something I, I I was forced to pick about a month ago, and I I, I don't want to change from it now. And I think it I think I buy it. you know the over under in Vegas is I think somewhere in the twenty three and a half twenty four range. I will go slightly over that, but with full knowledge that I'm sort of baking in a collection of things there. I think this 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 roster it might be a little bit better than that on the whole if Trey Young is not brutal as a rookie which he might be uh, and that won't even be an, an indictment on him in full because we saw some guys last year again like Dennis Smith for instance I still like as a prospect he was really bad last year that's what happens to rookie point guards that are given the keys so if he he could probably shave some wins off that on, on his own but I'll go with 25 as my prediction um, on the low end I mean they could certainly slip into the teens I mean I wouldn't project that by any means but if, especially if they sell some guys off in the middle of the season if young is bad if they struggle defensively in the way that we think that they might um, they could be the 30th de- defense in the league pretty easily um, and you know that maybe that's 20 19 21 somewhere in there they won 24 last year um, and got unlucky according to point differential they could be worse than that um, pretty easily if things don't go well even without a major injury on the high side, I can't imagine a scenario where they get more than like 33, 34 wins, maybe if the stars align perfectly. But you would need some real improvement from both Prince and Collins uh, and some stability from the veterans, plus uh, a better than average season from Trey Young to get there. So I'll say, you know, on the high side, 34 is a reasonable best case scenario. And that might even be high, honestly. The Hawks are, are a challenge with this because of squaring what they are and what they might be at the end of the year. So I agree with you that there might, you know, my expected if they were to run through the tape and finish the season was about 26, but I'm going to project 23 because I think they'll do some things to, to make this team a little worse. And also just, they're going to play young guys and young guys aren't good. And that's a good, <laughs> yep. that, that is what they should be doing. That is what Lloyd Pierce and the, and the front office should be encouraging. But that leads to some of these. And also the Hawks, I think the bottom of the league got a little bit stronger this year. And so they might just pick up a couple extra losses because of that, because there is not going to be this like Phoenix, Chicago, Memphis, just like morass of just bad teams. And lottery reform might change that a little bit. We'll see. I, I don't know exactly, but I think it's more just some of the teams that were awful either put in resources or will be getting guys back. And Atlanta at least starts the season behind a lot of those teams in line so they could pick up some losses. Then for worst case scenario, what you said about the teens is about right. I, I was thinking 
being 18 there, but you know, the difference between 18 and 19 and 20 is, is not really that significant in this sort of circumstance. I think they're meaningfully better than Phoenix was last year. Granted, Phoenix also dealt with some pretty catastrophic injuries, but I think the Hawks are better there. And then the example that I was thinking about in terms of their win total, I'm going to go with 33. And this gets lost in the shuffle of everything that happened this past year. Dallas, in terms of their point differential, and this is using, using clean the glass, which filters out garbage time. They had the point differential of a 33 win team last year. And they were, you know, they, I would see it as the reverse for the Hawks. So Dallas was bad on offense and kind of middle of the road underappreciated on defense. I think the best path for the Hawks is actually middle of the road on offense and then still pretty bad on defense. But that mm. same general balance, you know, that you're getting outscored by about three points per hundred possessions, negative three net rating. That usually makes the team about a 33-win team. I could see that for the Sox. I don't expect it. You know, if Trey Young, Trey Young would be exceeding expectations, they would keep their vets for most of the year. But I think that's a reasonable range. And I'm really excited to see what they prioritize and really what these guys show. And I've talked about this a fair amount, not only on these podcasts, but generally that discovery is for, at least speaking for myself, which is all I can ever do, is the most fun part of this. And that's why I'm really looking forward to the Hawks, because there's so little that I feel like I know about this team, but they now have a ceiling and intriguing guys that actually have some variance that matters here. And so I wonder where that's going to go. And not all of those questions are going to be answered this year, but at least getting closer is fun. It definitely is. And having a, a variable range, I mean, as you, you know, the, the best case scenario is one that it, that exists, but what matters for this Hawks team is development for the young, for the young guys. It matters a lot less if they get quality project production from the veterans who probably won't be around. There's that, there's that four or five player group that is really what's important for this year and development. And, and of course the, all the draft stuff, you know, I think we, based on those projections, we both agree this is going to be a team that's going to be probably in the running for a top five pick and they're going to need that top five pick for the future because they need another star level prospect to pair with these guys. But you know, the most important thing is, is growth internally from the players that are already on the roster and then everything else comes from there. So yeah, there's a lot of intrigue. I think I'm actually pretty excited to cover this team. No, full well that it won't be uh, a successful win-loss season, but I think the entertaining basketball will actually be, you know, around for the most part. D- defensively, I'm sure there'll be some frustrating moments um, as someone who appreciates that side of the floor, but uh, it-, it should be a lot of fun to sort of see the maturation process. And uh, I like you like to just kind of diagnose things as they happen and kind of just get some pleasure in the uh, in the process. And that's what the season is. Something else I wanted to mention: I don't really spend much time looking at a team schedule until I go through this, but something I noticed with the Hawks that is is interesting. I don't have a real statement on it yet, is that the first month or so of their season, until they have a big road trip on the West Coast in mid-November, they don't play many surefire playoff teams. Like, they have a lot of these games against the kind of the Charlottes and Memphises and Clevelands of the world, and they could very well lose a lot of those games. Like, that is entirely (laughs) possible. But if they're better than anticipated, we might find out pretty early. And that's fun. You know, like that could lead to some really rough moments later in the season if you're facing better teams later. But, you know, like, for example, they host Chicago on October 27th. They host Dallas on the 24th in an ESPN game that Nate and I might do for for the Twitter NBA show. We we have decided yet. But I'm excited to see those type of games. Like, what, what do those teams show? Can they really 
put some hits in offensively against them? Where is the defense there? And so I think we'll have a much better sense of kind of where where the Hawks are at the beginning of the season than you would than you would think for a team this young. That doesn't mean they're going to win a lot of those games. I don't expect them to, but I'm happy that they get the opportunity at the very least. Absolutely. And I think I'm actually fully prepared to have to push back against some fans who get really excited because they, they, they start the season with five games in a row against lottery, I guess projected lottery teams, and seven of their first eight are against are against some bad teams. So it doesn't mean they're going to win them, as you mentioned, but um, the early part of the schedule could be misleading and that, that ESPN, the only national TV game of the season for the Hawks is that is their home opener, and that's that game that you're talking about against Dallas. Um, so there should be a lot, a lot more eyeballs on the Hawks early in the year than there probably will be later in the year. Um, but uh, yeah, it should be uh, it's actually a recipe to, it's like, maybe they'll start like four and four, and people get really excited and then it's like, oh yeah, look at the rest of the schedule. It is, it's not quite as easy from here. Yeah, that's actually something that happened. Uh, granted, there were injuries in it as well, but happened to Orlando last year. I mean, Orlando hit every shot, and their opponents missed every shot early in the season. They won a couple of games. Everybody's like, see, look, they're there. And then it, it ended up going back <laughs> to, to what a lot of us expected, and then it got worse because of injuries. And the Hawks, it's I think it's a good thing for their fans that they're probably not defining success in terms of wins and losses this year. That is a healthier perspective, and that it is on player development. And I'm I'm going to be excited to see where it goes this year and to keep checking in on them every couple of weeks and, and see where these guys are because also with young players, there's a very big difference that you see a lot more of their progression over the course of the season. And so even somebody who's not, who doesn't care about the Hawks, if you've listened to us talk about them for more than an hour, I'm impressed, but (laughs) keep checking in because young guys, especially like Trey Young and point guards, like there's so much learning that goes on every game at the NBA level and they don't get to practice much. I know a lot of people fixate on that, but they don't get to practice much during the season. And so I'm, you, you, we'll see like what Trey Young looks like in October and compare that. You might not want to go all the way into April, depending on how this team turns out, but early March is certainly a good time to, for, for even whether you're watching every game or you're watching one a month, I think that's, it's good to make sure you do that with young teams because they'll be really different. For sure. And yeah, going into April is always dangerous. Uh, April basketball is generally bad for lottery teams, but uh, the Hawks will be at least somewhat trying until my, until March. So, and the young guys will have a reason to try all season long. So, I mean, if nothing else, Trey Young is a lot of fun to watch. I think, you know, he's been, he's been picked apart quite a bit. I have, I have my reservations about him as a prospect in particular, but Trey Young is a very fun player to consume, especially when he has it going, has a ball in his hands. You, between the long distance shooting and the passing, he's just a fun watch. So, uh, if nothing else, they have some entertaining players between him and Collins. Especially, you know, Collins is a lot of fun, like sort of under, sort of under the radar. If you're not a diehard, you probably haven't seen a ton of John Collins, but he's just, you know, those two guys could, have, could actually have a lot of fun playing together, pick and roll stuff, lobs and lo- lobs and long distance threes. It could be uh, the playing style is very different for the Hawks than it was during their uh, their glory years a couple years ago. But it doesn't mean it's uh, any less any less entertaining. Agreed. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on. My pleasure, Danny. Happy to do it, man. Always happy to do it. And we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks again to Brad Rowland for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Uprox, you can listen to Locked on Hawks, and you can follow him on Twitter at BT Rowland, B-T-R-O-W-L-A-N-D. Really enjoyed this episode. I've been really had a great time going into these in-depth conversations for my hosting duties for Dunked On. This is, alas, the end of that. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. You can also check out uh, the Real Jam Radio on the Eastern Conference, which both these teams are in, on Over-Unders with Arturo Gladi is already up. The episode on the Western Conference will be up sometime around when you all are listening to this, so you can check that out. But before we go, I wanted to remind you that Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals the priority. 
If you're a member, you receive lifetime benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 life support, and access to over 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. 